Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Okay, back to our season preview series. And wanted to talk about a team that I actually find somewhat confounding. I'm really interested to talk about them for an hour. I really try to wrap my head around them. I do think they're not going to be that great. That's not a surprise when you're talking about the New York Knicks necessarily. But how exactly that's going to occur is what's actually probably more interesting to me. And we're going to bring in Jared Dubin, longtime Knicks fan. Are you still a Knicks fan? Yeah. He's going to have I mean, that I... sort of fatalistic bent to you at times. I, I would say I probably had that since like young adulthood. The team hasn't really been good since I was like 14, which now is more than half my life by a not insignificant amount. The, there's the Halcyon 2012-13 season. Yeah. Um, the East is big, man. Uh, <laughs> shout out to my guy, Mike Woodson, forever trying to go away from what works. Uh, what a guy. <laughs> but yet he was the most effective coach <laughs> that they've had. Yeah. In in quite some time. For it's um, The Knicks have not been a successful basketball team. I feel like that's a pretty safe space to land on. They've not been very good of, of late. Yeah. So, and obviously 17 and 65 a year ago how much of that is going to carry over because obviously they, they did have a, a lot of turnover do you think that has any predictive value for this team other than simply they're so nixy and it's the same cast of characters kind of in charge but from a roster standpoint how much of what brought them to 17 and 65 is going to remain this year so this is a situation that the knicks were in not too long ago they were 17 and 65 uh in i believe 2014 15 yeah um, yeah the carmelo injury year yeah, yeah that was uh the worst season in franchise history the worst record at least in franchise history 17 and 65 and that summer was very similar to this summer in that the knicks made a whole lot of changes they had what at the time was their highest draft pick since patrick ewing they ended up taking Kristaps porzingis with that pick they signed a bunch of guys in free agency who were supposed to be you know the competent veterans that would bring them back to the playoffs and they were getting carmelo back from injury and there was a lot of talk throughout that summer you know you can't put too much emphasis on that 17 and 65 record last year this is you know a different case than most teams that are that bad and um i did a bunch of research that summer on the history of teams that win you know between 14 and 20 games in a full season and i found that on average they tend to improve by about 10 wins the following year um they went from an average of 17.3 wins to an average of 27.2 wins and you might say you know again yeah, this is they're a, over under is 27.5 so i guess i was yeah. right to pick the under <laughs> yeah. um you know you might say again this is a special case this was a team that was clearly tanking next year they added the number three pick in the draft and rj barrett they signed a bunch of competent veterans and again you know they did the same thing the last time this happened and they won 31 games the following year and that's actually on the high end 
of improvement in terms of you know teams that that have that poor of a season the year before. Um, I found that something like five out of sixty something teams made the playoffs the following year. It's just it's a very unlikely scenario that they'll be quite that good. I do think that just naturally it's unlikely to be as bad or worse, um, just because it's very difficult to win that few games back to back seasons. But I don't think anybody should be expecting a team that's gonna you know hang around the playoff race all year or be in the playoffs yeah and let's just kind of run through who the hell is on this team yeah. <laughs> like uh i'm just gonna, gonna run through their depth chart here uh dennis smith jr alfred payton frank nilakina they are in a competition supposedly for the point guard minutes we'll get to that uh, i'm sure shooting guard rj barrett wayne ellington damian dotson alonso trier Small forward, I guess you could say Marcus Morris looks like the starter there. Uh, Reggie Bullock, maybe he's he's more of a two, but he's not going to be healthy to start the season with that back issue that led to the reduction in his contract and got Marcus Morris on this team. Kevin Knox and uh, maybe Ignis Brzezikas, although he probably is more of a power forward. And keep in mind, Knox and Morris might even be more power forwards themselves also. Uh, Julius Randle and Taj Gibson, power forwards. Or maybe you could say Portis is the power forward and Gibson is the center and Mitchell Robinson uh, as well. So that's a lot of guys. Uh, and so I guess we're there is kind of a weird dichotomy on this roster. Right? On the one hand, you've got Dennis Smith. And maybe you could throw Nilke in that category that he's kind of out of favor until the World Cup. RJ Barrett, Kevin Knox, Mitchell Robinson, Julius Randle is like kind of a hybrid. And then you've got like all these vets that they've signed. Do you think that they're going to prioritize, despite signing these vets, they're going to prioritize the young guys and give them the ball and give them more playing time? Or is it going to be the vets that they're really going to emphasize here early on and try to win as many games as possible? I think that's sort of the question that's going to kind of define the season. I mean, they did sign a bunch of guys that seem like they should at least get regular minutes. Like Julius Randle, I would imagine, is going to start next to Mitch Robinson in the front court. Um, Bobby Portis played fairly well last year. Taj Gibson, I don't imagine, signed to not play. Um, Wayne Ellington is the bet. I, I don't think it's particularly close. He He's the best shooter on the roster, and then Reggie Bullock is probably the next best shooter if and when he's healthy. And I don't think Marcus Morris gave up his contract with the Spurs to not start or not play big minutes. And um, I mean, again, they, they signed Alfred Payton, who is a um, a Scott Perry guy from when he was in Orlando, and I feel like he probably didn't sign to not start or not play. Yeah, there seemed like there are some reports early in the summer after he signed that he might have the inside track to start yeah i mean it's obviously early in camp i was not able to go to media day because i was at my parents house for the jewish holidays so i didn't get um you know sort of the the inside uh insight into what exactly they're planning this early in camp. I, I, I think that was probably a wise decision though yeah, i mean so. I don't, it wasn't really a decision i didn't have a choice but to go to my parents for the jewish holidays yeah well uh, i mean p- pleasing your parents and hashem is maybe more important th- than uh pleasing the uh the Knicks media department although you could say that uh you know, the Knicks PR is harder to please than your parents and Hisham. So yeah, I would think so. Although you know what, next week is Yom Kippur. I can atone for my sin of being a Knicks fan. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, it's um, the balance that they strike there in terms of whether they want to play these veteran guys and whether they want to play these young guys is, again, going to define a lot of the season. You know, it's it's sort of being pegged as a decision between play the young guys or try to win with the veteran guys. And I don't know that that dichotomy is necessarily as clean as it seems. I don't know that playing, say, Alfred Payton over Dennis Smith necessarily gives you a better chance to win or playing Bobby Portis over Mitch Robinson necessarily gives you a better chance to win. I think that probably is the case with Marcus Morris and Wayne Ellington, say, over Kevin Knox and R.J. Barrett. Like, even if R.J. Barrett is good as a rookie, most rookies are bad. So even if he's a good rookie, he's probably not going to be a positive player during his first season. And like, that's fine. That's what you expect, even from a guy who, you know, becomes a good player eventually. Um, So I would say that at those spots, particularly on the wing, it's probably more likely that depending on the older guys would lead to more winning. But that's not necessarily what's beneficial for them um, you know, as the, the team that they want to develop. I think particularly this year, they really need to find out like if they actually have anything in guys like Dennis Smith and Kevin Knox and, and Frank Nielakina if he ends up staying on the team. Like It really seemed like during the draft or in the weeks leading up to the draft, there was like a lot of smoke around the fact that they were going to trade him. Um, and it really seemed like he was going to be gone by the end of the draft. And then that just didn't happen. And obviously he played well um, for France this summer. So who knows if he might wind up you know, getting into the rotation a bit more. Yeah, I think he is uh – they're giving up on him a little bit early especially just because he had such an injury hit here last year um let's talk about uh, i think as i look at this rotation overall i'm in total agreement with you i think that morris and ellington versus barrett and knox is going to be the inflection point of you know, where is this season going and morris and ellington are probably the two best three-point shooters on the team uh and at least as long as bullock is hurt yeah right yeah so and they desperately need those guys right because mm-hmm. point guard they don't don't have anybody who can shoot uh, you know Dennis Smith has supposedly reworked his shot we'll see it with him but you know he doesn't project to be a plus shooter necessarily uh and then Randall shot more threes but you want him attacking inside if you're going to play him with Robinson which uh seems like kind of a dubious offensive pairing for me uh but you know those are kind of their two biggest prospects there so they kind of have to start together maybe Portis although I think his defense is atrocious and he's too much of a gunner he at least has a shooting element next to either of those guys so maybe they'll try and get him in early but if the stars would be Randall and Robinson you really almost need Ellington and Morris with those guys to have even you know like below average shooting if you're gonna go with Barrett instead of Ellington which I mean I would be surprised if they didn't he's the number three overall pick and Wayne Ellington is you know a guy on a one-year deal with a second year nine guarantee uh or team option i have to look up exactly what that is i can't remember yeah, but, all of the guys yeah. on the two-year deals have either non-guarantees or team options or non-guaranteed right. team options um in the second year and then randall is two years with the third year as the non-guarantee or team option i can't remember which one but the other yeah guys well because all, uh, listeners of this podcast must know uh we've got team option for bobby portis non-guarantees for taj gibson wayne ellington and alfred payton and reggie bullock so I'm interested uh, to know why they structured some of them as team options and why they structured some as non-guarantees. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Well, and they all, it's the non-guarantees are all early. They're 628, right. which is usually about the same time as the, the player option. So that's, yeah, it really is not a ton of, uh, 
a ton of difference there really other than simply that maybe with portis the idea being i think maybe with portis it's just because uh mark he's mark barlstein client right so i think barlstein just seems to kind of like team options better than non-guarantees because that at least if there's an opt-out you have a chance to bring him back for a lower salary or a higher salary on longer years or something like that there's a little more optionality for the player there maybe maybe that's the reason um but that's not why you're here uh, for Cap Minutia. That's uh, that's what you get with Dunked On and our other uh, 219 episodes per year. But not this one. Uh, so yeah, that that getting back to uh, the shooting aspect. I mean, it seems to me like Ellington and Morris are critical players. But I mean, hard to imagine that Ellington is going to play much uh, uh, over RJ Barrett certainly as a starter. Yeah, I mean, I would think that they probably want Barrett to earn that starting job in camp and feel good about having him in that spot so they don't really have to make a decision just because that's typically what you want to happen with a guy that you pick number three in the draft i remember you know the same thing when they were coming off the other 17 and 65 season there was speculation that maybe chris Porzingis would not be a starter come off the bench not play that much and then it just was very clear you know in camp and in the preseason that he was like the best front court player on the roster that that wasn't carmelo at the time and there was no way they could have kept him out of the starting lineup and kept him out of playing big minutes and i would imagine they would like for the same thing to happen with rj barrett um obviously he did not shoot very well particularly from the outside at duke um and you do want to have spacing around him you know and they're already talking about and beat writers are posting videos of mitch robinson shooting threes i don't know how much that'll actually happen or whether it'll be a weapon he didn't really have uh I, I'm going to predict it's not yeah. going to be, I mean, I, he was a terrible free throw shooter last year. And even just like, I haven't seen him over the summer, but like him just shooting like standstill set shots from the elbow was like one of the worst right. I've ever seen from an NBA player when I saw him like warming up in Golden State when they yeah, were here he last, was not pretty late last year. Outside the immediate area of the rim last year. So to suddenly stretch all the way to three would be very surprising. Um, you know, Julius Randle did, like you said, um, you know, shoot a little bit more from three last season but like he literally just started doing that last season you know they're talking about putting the ball in his hands a bunch to sort of minimize the impact of his not necessarily that he's a non-shooter but defenses certainly treat him as a non-shooter even if he shoots like 35 percent on two or three attempts a game yeah. I, I think defenses are going to say you know what go take that we're not going to let you go to the right rim. and that's where most of his three-pointers came from last year of just all right they are backing way off me i'm wide open i've got all day to get this off you know he's not just right. hey swing it to julius and he's gonna quick compact release get the shot off like that's that's not exactly. where those shots come i from. mean I, I think that the swing there in terms of whether they have enough shooting to run a sustainable offense at all is going to be whether knox's three-point shooting can materialize um last year he was in you know the low 30s for most of the year um after shooting it pretty well during summer league um it's uh it's it's pretty important for them that he turn into at least a an average shooter from deep otherwise i think they're gonna have trouble generating spacing and generating scoring just because they're not going to have enough shooting if they have their best offensive players on the floor yeah that that makes sense to me i, I think knox hopefully the, maybe the one upside of all these like usage guys that they signed this year is or, or brought in is he can at least try to focus on just being like an effective player instead of you know we're going to be running a lot of stuff through i mean last year knox led the team in minutes almost 2200 minutes 48 percent true shooting and 22 percent usage like that's probably too high for him at this point in time so he's gonna need to just focus more on and 
developing the parts of his game that will actually get you on the floor as a young player but you know having him be a featured part of the offense he obviously wasn't ready for that and that's you know plays into maybe some of his worst tendencies so hopefully it now being forced to earn minutes he can be all right i'm gonna be more of a spot-up shooter defend rebound some does he have that in them we'll see but i think that's you know he's got to get good at that stuff before we can talk about him it really starting to kind of take over more offensively because you know as the terrible efficiency showed last year he was not ready to do that um yeah i would say like yeah. he he did not succeed last year he was you know i would say arguably <laughs> he did not succeed last year yeah no, he was that's, arguably that's, that's the true. worst rotation player in the league given his you know incredible lack of efficiency offensively on sizable usage and then he was just kind of a disaster on defense um i also think it was pretty expected and reasonable for him not to succeed last year you know he was a a 19 year old score first combo forward on a team with essentially zero other threats offensively and i mean he was not put in position to succeed and i think he failed in all of the ways you would expect a player like that to fail that's not that's not excusing it i just think it sort of explains exactly what happened and i do think that you know just naturally it would be very difficult for him to be worse this year because of how bad he was last season and just because like you said they do have players that are now going to handle a lot of things that there were just weren't guys on the roster that were able to handle last year and i think he should get better just naturally because he'll be in a role that makes more sense and there will be other guys on the floor that defenses actually have to worry about on occasion and um I just think naturally that that should lead to at least better shooting numbers. He did wind up at 34% from three by the end of the year, which is, you know, bad, but not atrocious. Yeah. His stroke looks pretty good too. Yeah. It's it's not like it's a broken shot that he needs to completely rework. Yeah. Just, and I thought actually at the lower levels, like when I saw him at the hoop summit, I was actually very worried about his shot. And at Kentucky, that's one thing that really improved. Like he looks like a natural shooter. He shoots mm-hmm. a very smooth ball now. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think that just naturally, um, you know, the the vertical spacing element that Robinson brings should help just by drawing guys into the paint you know guys like Randall having the ball and drawing defensive attention if he can make passes on the move rather than just sort of stationary from the elbows and same thing you know I thought when I watched RJ Barrett last year I thought that his passing was probably relative to what people talked about his best skill um and i think if he can do that at the nba level that that should help Knox too um and, and i just i don't i'm not saying that passing is his best skill but people tend to talk about the scoring and the scoring mentality from him significantly more than they talk about like seeing the floor and it's not as though he saw multiple layers of defense just yet but i do think that when there was a pass to be made he could make it he didn't always make it but when he decided to he usually got it to the right spot and i think if he does that in the nba that should help Knox too all right let's take a quick break here and then we're gonna talk about rj barrett so i know we have a lot of sneaker heads in our audience and the best place to get sneakers online goat.com goat.com slash cap space you know how to spell goat g-o-a-t we discuss the goat a fair amount here on the program also discuss cap space a fair amount here on the program so goat.com slash cap space will let you find the perfect 100 authentic sneaker if you're gonna buy the awesome sneakers that you know you want as a sneaker head you better be sure that they're the real thing and goat is the global destination for authentic sneakers ranging from new releases to rare finds and exclusive drops they're the safest way to buy and sell authentic 
sneakers online they've even got people working for them who know what a pair of jordans is supposed to smell like they weigh the shoes they are able to avoid any issues with inauthentic sneakers they've got 15 million users around the world buying and selling verified shoes the way it works is you buy your sneakers from a retailer they send it to goat goat verifies that the sneakers are authentic and then it gets sent on to you they work only with trusted sellers and they inspect every single detail from the stitching the color size and weight even the smell of the shoes once again the way to get started with them and support the show is goat.com slash capspace and don't forget that slash capspace url to let them know that you came from us all right so i've been low on barrett i did not like the knicks taking him at number three i was hoping they were going to go with uh with garland i had uh, pretty low on my board uh, i think regular listeners of this show uh, know why that is i'm sure we'll get into it but i wanted to get your opinion of number one taking barrett at the number three pick and then just where where two where you think he's going to be this year and three your opinion of him uh, as an overall prospect yeah i guess i'll start with sort of the opinion as an overall prospect because that sort of informs um you know the other aspects there i was i would say um lower than the people who see uh you know a surefire 10-time all-star things like that and higher than some of the draft community that was like you know it doesn't make sense that this guy is gonna go in the top five i think that what wasn't most of the draft community like relatively high i know like gavoni and schmitz were like yeah "Yeah, he's you know i would say that there was a sizable portion of the draft community that was very high on him and it was like you know this guy is a surefire star and you know he in any other year he would have an argument to go number one and then there was a portion of the draft community that was very low um that was like it doesn't make sense that this guy is going to go up here and i don't get it and it's based on reputation i would say i fell between those two camps not particularly close to the the polls on either one of them i think that there are some things that he does well and some things that he does very poorly um i think that i was listening to to you and danny when you did your scouting report on him and the thing that stood out most to you guys was something that definitely stood out to me as well where he just didn't blow past guys very often and a lot of yeah. the shots that he had to take and even the shots that he made were very difficult and i think it's 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 a, it's a good thing. It's a desirable skill to be able to make tough shots and finish through contact or, you know, just over guys around the rim. It's a significantly more desirable skill to not have to do that and to be able to create easy shots for yourself. Um, and I think it's a concern. Yeah, there's a lot of overpowering guys at the lower levels that is just not going to work in the NBA. Right. And, you know, it's possible that, you know, you could be a power player as a wing that sort of powers through guys and, and gets your shots that way. It's just difficult to do that. And it takes, I think, time to be able to do that. And it takes, you know, learning more about touch and timing and, you know, ways to get into, you know, Euro steps and things like that. And it's a, I think it's a longer development path to be able to turn into that kind of player. So I do think that there are things that he has to work on in terms of his first step and his time and you know being able to beat rotating defenses and things like that and for for that reason i think i sort of see him more as someone who 
ideally is sort of a second side guy that beats closing defenders and uses his his power to get through them and get to the rim that way as opposed to someone where he's the the primary offensive initiator and you know can beat any defense that you throw at him i think that you know relative to what i had been told about him as a prospect before the season because i tend to not watch college very much during the year and then i sort of cram you know different you know videos of guys in the the weeks or so before the draft i think that passing and being able to see passing lanes stood out to me as something that got a little bit underrated relative to what I had come to expect and the scoring and scoring mentality. Yeah, I, I thought his passing might have been his best skill. Yeah. I, I think and, and passing and rebounding. Those yeah, are the two. he's a very good rebounder out of position as well. He seems to be a guy that um, will go and get the ball. And I think for a team that has, you know, for example, like Knox is not a very good rebounder for a guy his size or for a guy who's going to play his position. And I think if you have a guy like Barrett next to him, that sort of helps make up for things that way. And then a guy like Mitch Robinson next to him makes up for things that way too. And in, in that sense, I think it sort of makes sense if you want to have those guys play together. So I, I think that there's skill there and there's certainly a chance for him to be a high level player. I don't see the surefire, you know, all-star type who's going to score 25 a night every night that some people saw. And I don't see the guy who's like not a starter that some people saw. I think it's somewhere between those two poles and it sort of depends on whether he, whether the things that he did well in college translate and whether he can improve on the things that he did not do well. But I think that's the case for a lot of prospects who aren't surefire all-star types. Um, I don't know that I necessarily would or wouldn't have taken him at number three because I just don't think that there was a chance that they were ever going to take anybody else um, once the top two guys were locked in. Yeah. Yeah, and he really wanted to be in New York, uh, which you know, I mean, yeah, I think which most to me, do, but, like one of my friends yeah. is um, uh, a, a big Nick fan and was very big on Barrett throughout the season, and was one of the guys that was trying to tell me throughout the year, like I think it's okay if they don't get the number one pick or number two pick because I li- I like Barrett the same as those guys, and uh, and one of the reasons was he wants to be a Nick, and just like I don't care, like you can, <laughs> you can want to be a Nick all you want, I only care if you're good. Uh, well, I mean, I guess Kristaps Porzingis ended up not wanting to be a nick which uh you know depends on uh, who you ask about who deserves the blame for that and how much that was actually the case but uh, he's now not in new york anymore um but yeah for barrett i think his game is so usage focused that it's if he doesn't hit as you know really one of those primary option type of guys then you start to wonder about where he's gonna be able to contribute because i mean he is just for good or for ill he is very determined he is a very high usage guy he is very aggressive he's uh, that's the way he's always played off the ball you know his shooting is just a major question mark for me, summer league was not particularly encouraging in that regard. His free throw shooting has been under seventy percent basically his whole career. I, I will give him credit though that he recognizes his deficiencies, and I think he works really hard. Like even you know he is so left-handed just naturally. I mean, he plays with his left side way forward. He's so much better going left, but he's really trying to improve his right hand. I mean, and it looks kind of awkward but he is like and, and you can tell it's like in his brain like all right i'm on the right side i want to shoot left all right no no i'm, I'm supposed to shoot it right hand at this time you know and so and, and i thought he actually is taking more shots with his right hand we'll see whether that actually gets to be a weapon for him gets to be natural but for as we turn to this year's team though to me the question is how much are they really going to give these this guy the keys because if they do 
I mean, I don't, I don't know if there's a way for them to have good offense anyway, but I just don't see a way that he can possibly be efficient. And part of why I was critical of their summer and all these power forwards was, yeah, you know, you're supposed to develop this guy. You're supposed to see what he's supposed to look like. But now you added all these usage guys. You didn't add much shooting. And so you're not really providing an ecosystem where he's going to succeed. And so either he's going to kind of show some flashes, but uh, get left behind, you know, so Bobby Portis and Julius Randle can do all the scoring and Marcus Morris or they're going to give him the ball anyway but then he's going to struggle in terms of having enough space to really work with so i I, you know i don't really like either of those uh, foreseen outcomes yeah i mean i was um so i think that their summer has gotten a lot of attention for um in some circles for being a disaster and in in certain senses it absolutely was and then it has gotten it was fine given what they had you know once they got spurned i mean it's right like if those guys weren't going to sign with the Knicks, there was nothing they could have yeah. done to just say, like, no, you have to sign with the Knicks. Like, that's not <laughs> a thing that can happen. Like, the only thing they could have done was put themselves in position to get who they wanted and, you know, try to pitch them. Yeah. It seemed like this year there was not really an opportunity to pitch anybody. Guys just sort of decided where they wanted to go. And then those teams were like, OK, sounds good. Um, yeah. Well, well, their opportunity to pitch someone was uh, the portion uh, of the previous year in which they went 17 and 65 right um yeah and, <laughs> the, and the, that, say, that was their pitch 17 and 65 yeah um I would say that they signed guys who are NBA players, which is an improvement over last year's team by a long shot. They had a bunch of guys yeah, last year. I think people forget just how few actual guys they had by the end of the year, especially once the, the trade was made uh, with Porzingis. Yeah. Um, so in, in that sense, it's certainly an improvement. There has been, I think, pushback from a certain segment of Nick fans that is like they did a really good job this summer. And I think, you know, in terms of improving the talent base that they had, that's true. It would be difficult for them to have had to come into this year with less talent than they had last year. But I agree with you in the sense that if you're not going to sign star guys, I don't particularly understand um, signing guys who are not either plus shooters, plus defenders, or plus both. Um, To me, Portis and Peyton are the two that didn't make sense to me. Like, I think they would have been better off just leaving that space open as opposed to signing. Yeah, or being one of the teams that, you know, took on somebody um, and got paid in a draft pick. Yeah, that's that's what I meant. I mean, that would have been the ultimate idea there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, to me, the again, the the Bobby Portis money, yeah, and the Peyton money as well um, doesn't make all that much sense to me. Um, Julius Randle, I think, makes sense. I don't think he's a particularly good fit with Robinson or Barrett. I think he operates from a lot of the same spaces as Barrett does, and they're both very significantly, you know, left-hand dominant and will probably want to, you know, be in the same spots on the floor a lot of times. And, you know, though he did start shooting more last year, he's not going to get traded as a shooter by defenses and having him and Robinson in the same front court could lead to sort of cramped spacing and that hurts yeah. Barrett as well. But, but he's young like, and he puts up efficient offensive numbers yeah, he's and a good you know that's the type player. and they got it they got uh three years worth of him if they want it so that's you know that's not it's a decent risk to take i think with him even if you know again he's not an amazing fit but the, you know they did need some more player i mean he's he's the only player on this team that projects to be an efficient creator so you know right. that's something right like i would say like him and robinson are the two best offensive players on the team right now but robinson is strictly a finisher and can't be asked to create anything for himself and most of the impact he's going to have is as a lob guy and as a vertical spacer um randall i think at least can i mean he showed last year like he can create a bunch of 
offense for himself and even in somewhat tight spacing can do it with a decent efficiency and soak up a bunch of usage doing it and he's I am a big fan of Julius Randle I've been one of the guys on you know Julius Randle Hill or Julius Randle Island or whatever you want to call it I don't think he was the best fit with the two guys who seem like the Knicks two best prospects but I mean I, I think it's a worthy gamble certainly to um to sign him it's uh the other guys they signed I would have just prioritized different things and I think it's clear that over the years the the Knicks through various iterations of their front office do not prioritize the same things in basketball players or in team building as I do and that's not something I can change so yeah <laughs> yeah I mean they do obviously they just have a lot of usage guys on this team and not a ton of shooting and yeah, maybe not a ton of defense either um let's let's talk about the point guard position now and Smith, Peyton, Nilakina, how do you see the playing time with that group breaking down? And also, like to hear your thoughts on what Dennis Smith did as a Nick last year. Yeah, I would say that to the extent that Frank is a point guard, they don't necessarily see him as one. I think multiple coaches now at this point have made a point of saying, like, we don't see him as a point guard. We see him as a guard. The best thing about him is he can play both positions. It really just does not seem like they want him to be a guy that has the ball in his hands a bunch and is running the offense with the keys and you know in in reality like that's not really the kind of player he is like he's not a guy that you're going to stick at the top of the key and be like go run 50 pick and rolls a game i think he's a guy who could play with smith a guy who could play with peyton a guy who could play as you know the the only point guard on the court but i don't see him as factoring necessarily in as like we're gonna carve out 20 minutes for frank uh at the point per game um i just don't see that happening to me it's going to be more of a smith Peyton split with Frank taking some minutes at the point and some minutes at the other spot if he ends up in the rotation at all. I think that um, certainly what he showed with France this summer, it seems like the kind of guy you would want to find minutes for, but he also has been a guy who he was the number eight, nine, whatever it was, eight or nine pick in the draft. Eight. And yeah. they do not seem to have prioritized his development or putting him in a position to succeed in either of his first two years. And I'm not sure why that would change in year three. So I would not say that I necessarily expect him to be given all that many minutes in general, especially given that they did, you know, they drafted Barrett, who's going to get minutes on the wing. They signed Ellington, who's going to get minutes on the wing. They seem to, you know, like Alonzo Trier last year, and he's not necessarily a primary ball handler either. And then they signed Peyton for the backcourt. They traded for Smith for the backcourt. So it's, it's a, there's certainly a crunch there. Um, you know, in terms of Smith last year, I think he was very much the same player in New York as he was in Dallas just with a higher usage rate um or shooting too he struggled from from three yeah which i think um was probably expected for the same reason that it was expected that Knox struggled in the way that he did um i don't necessarily expect smith to be a plus shooter really at any point um a lot for him is going to depend under 70 percent from the line doesn't give you a ton of hope there and it's not like he was a plus shooter in college either um i think for him a lot is going to depend on you know whether he can use his athleticism to blow by guys and whether he can read multiple levels of defense and make teams pay for ducking under screens and saying 
we're not going to let you to get to the rim and we're going to force you to either make the right pass or pull up for a jumper yeah smith i still think it's a little early to give up on him after two years as a very young point guard he does have a ton of athleticism i think he's got some natural vision one thing at least was that his usage went up and his turnovers went way down from uh earlier in the season dallas he did only play 21 games with the knicks as mentioned his three-point shooting was well below where it was uh in dallas even though i don't see him as a plus shooter uh you know he was lower than his uh, established amount his uh, passing playmaking went up a, a little bit it got to the line about the same so yeah i mean i don't think he was that different a player he had a couple of big games also was dealing with some lower back issues it ended up only playing uh, a little over 50 games between the the two stops i think he so was, it does seem like yeah go ahead sorry i, th- I think he was just more comfortable um in new york than he was in dallas he's just a guy who has more comfort with the ball in his hands than playing off the ball and i think that that makes sense given his skill set it's just a question of whether you know his play is going to merit being a guy who has the ball in his hands as much as he wants to yeah and also there's gonna be a lot more competition for that this year so he is gonna have to and actually i think as a spot-up shooter his three-point shooting hasn't been atrocious it's really been the on-ball ones where he's struggled so Maybe he can be a, a decent off-ball shooter. He probably, uh, sad as this to say for Knicks fans, probably projects to be the best shooter of those three options uh, at the point guard position. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Unless the, the shooting yeah. that Frank had with France carries over, but he was like a decent shooter, um, you know, in when he played in the, the French League before he came into the NBA, and he has not just been like, you know, one of the handful of worst offensive players in the league since he's been in the NBA. You know, last year there were a lot of injuries that affected that, but I think even the defensive you know, effort and tenacity that he showed as a rookie slipped off last year amid those injuries too. And if you're going to be that bad offensively, you can't be, you know, even an average defender. You have to be significantly better than that. And he, I think he was at times as a rookie and he was mostly, you know, above average defensively as a rookie. And then there were times where he was really, really good. Last year, I think that the defense was more average or worse for most of the year. And maybe some of that was injuries, but unless the shooting is going to come around or the passing is going to come around or he gets significantly more aggressive as an offensive player, there's just no way you could keep a guy like that on the floor unless he's an elite defender yeah alfred payton also is, is now his fourth nba stop a, a couple of them uh brought in uh, by scott perry there is hope that maybe on a better team although new orleans uh, was perhaps not that by the end uh that he could contribute more only managed 42 games uh, had uh, some issues uh, with his hand early on i can't remember what, the, what his other injury was but really didn't take any kind of a statistical step forward still true shooting percentage 50 percent uh three-point shooting uh, not a, a strength uh, for him and you know, just the promise that he showed defensively in Orlando his first year. I mean, he had a seal percentage of 2.9%, and he basically has been well below that ever since. Athleticism, he had 27 dunks his first year in Orlando and has never had, he's been in single digits every other year but one afterwards. So you just, we haven't seen, you know, you thought, hey, this guy's really athletic. He could maybe put it together enough from a shooting perspective and really be a terror defensively. And, you know, we just haven't seen that. He had a few stretches where he had like some triple doubles in Orlando and when they're playing out the string, but, you know, that hasn't really materialized. So I'm just, I'm not sure why even a one year, $8 million deal at the second year, nine guaranteed is something that he merited 
traded other than just scott perry likes him and thinks that he can rehabilitate him in some fashion but i don't think he makes sense for this group when they're trying to see what they have in smith and nilakina and, and i would expect that smith is going to be the best option of those three guys but again you know none of those three have played at a level that's actually going to help you win and to that end you think we might see any no point guard lineups that might be a way for them to get some more of these wings on the floor and maybe even be a little more passable defensively yeah, i think it's possible you know fisdale last year like the the team that he was coaching i think was not conducive to winning and uh certainly they did not win um but i do think he showed somewhat of a willingness to experiment with different kinds of things i think some of that was you know tinkering to see what works and what skills guys have and what guys may fit if they had the kind of summer that they wanted to have um and I think that there are enough guys like, you know, Randall and Barrett who can handle the ball and pass a little bit that you could try to get away with playing like a, you know, a Barrett, Ellington, Knox, Randall, Portis lineup or something like that and just see if it works. Um, but I do think yeah, that they've also like Julius Randall is, is much better as a switch defender. So getting more size and switching. There's also with young guys, it's easier to just switch because it's just harder to screw up mm-hmm. than, than in a conventional system where these young guys don't know what the hell to do so yeah i mean and barrett you know it takes away a running element but barrett i think you know with passing being his best skill at this point maybe he can concentrate more on trying to set guys up Mm -hmm. that gives you some more ways to get ellington and trier into the lineup um so yeah, I'm, yeah I'm i don't know I, see... I, I might try that if those guys really struggle the point cards yeah i would try pretty much anything like i don't think it's a team that's gonna be <laughs> very good and i think that at the polls of the league um they should really use the regular season as an experiment to see what kind of things work and what kind of things don't like if if you're going to be really good and you know you're going to the playoffs or if you're going to be really bad and you know you're not i think that teams should be way more willing to just try weird stuff um and i think that that a lot of that is why you saw so many more teams using zone defenses last year um, than before. And it, it's not something that carried over a ton to the playoffs, but I do think it was weaponized particularly well for certain teams during the regular season. Like the, the Heat weaponized it a lot. The Raptors, when they went to it, they were the best zone defense team in the league last year. And then there were teams that were just, you know, atrocious defensively that went to it as sort of a last resort just because they couldn't get any stops. The Knicks were among those teams. The Cavs were among those teams for a time even the spurs greg popovich like hated it and it took me three different times of asking him about it in different press conferences to to, uh to actually get him to give me an answer but he eventually did and talked about you know why they went to it and how things were just not working for them and then he was like you know teams just get sort of flummoxed by it because they don't know how to play against zone um i do think i'm i'm very interested in what the knicks want their style of defense to be this year because there was really no discernible system last year in terms of like in watching their games i had no idea what they wanted to accomplish defensively some of that was because they didn't have a lot of nba talent some of that was because they had a bunch of guys out with injuries some of it was just because they were an extremely young team and then some of that certainly down the stretch was because they just made so many changes that it's sort of impossible to instill a system but and this is something that i've talked about with you know mike vorkanov who covers the knicks uh for the athletic on twitter like the early process sixers and the early kenny atkinson nets also had a similar lack of talent and a lot of turnover 
turnover and things like that. And they were still able to say, this is the way that we want to play. This is the yeah. kind of offense we want to run. This is the kind of defense that we want to run. I, I need to see David Fisdale sort of install the kind of team that he wants to be, um, you know, even with a relative lack of talent compared to other teams in the league. Like, I should be able to watch a Nick game and know how they want to play. And last year, that was not the case. So I would, I, I'm very interested to know what he wants his defensive system to be, because there are some guys, like you mentioned, Randall, like he's going to be better as a switch defender. Uh, Bobby Portis probably is going to be better as a non-defender because he just doesn't know what he's doing. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think that Knox, just because of his lack of strength, is probably going to be better as a guy who like you want him to switch just because he might be able to get nudged off of certain matchups, especially when he gets screened. Like, I don't think he's yeah. going to be a guy who's going to fight through, but RJ Barrett is the other way around. Like, he's a guy who has a lot of strength. That's probably one of his best skills defensively is going to be the ability to fight his way through screens. Um, so I'm interested to see what they want to do on defense and, and which kind of things they want to switch. Do they want, you know, to force guys toward the baseline? Are they going to overload things like that? Like, I just want to know what their system is. And the key figure in that is Robinson, mm-hmm. right? He's, I mean, just crazy block percentage blocked 10% of opponent twos last year I mean one of the best raw shot blockers you'll see he's you know sprints all over the floor he surprises guys he blocks three pointers uh you know certainly as with the lack of high level experience not the most disciplined defender at this point in time so do you think he can make the advancement to being kind of that game-changing Rudy Gobert type of defender in time I think in time it's definitely possible like I, I don't know that I would go to probable just because projecting anybody to get to that level is crazy because it's yeah. a very small group of guys yeah that are- and also I mean those guys if you see like those guys showed in the first couple of years I mean Gobert I remember like I was his rookie year I was like why isn't Ty Corbin playing this guy they have the worst defense in the league and like they stop people whenever he's on the floor and that was when he was you know just a a skinny rookie had no idea what he was doing you know so yeah and I would uh, say like Robinson was very much in the same way last year like the defense was significantly better when he was on the court and you know I think encouragingly you know not just the block rate which was like at an insane level but you know his steal rate for a big guy was pretty high too and he got his hands on a lot of balls deflection wise and having talked to him a few times about, you know, making an impact on defense despite not really having played any high-level competition before last year. I think he's a guy who is thinking about things. Like, he's not someone who's just like, I'm trying to block shots because I'm trying to block shots. Um, I, I think that there is, there's a motor working in there. So the the desire to, like, I, I don't think he's going to be a guy who always chases the block like Hassan Whiteside. Um, I think he's going to try to figure out when he should be going for the block when he should be rotating over. I talked to him for the zone defense story I did last year, and he talked about how playing that on occasion sort of helped him realize where he should be and when and why. And that, I think, sort of translated over as they played, you know, as they cut down on the zone and played more man defense throughout the rest of the year. And I think that a guy who essentially had no idea what he was doing on defense for the first half of the season to be able to make the kind of impact that he did is pretty incredible. And I, and I, I would say I have extremely high hopes for him as a difference maker defensively, particularly if he can do more um, of the, you know, moderation in terms of chasing blocks and and be in there for more rebounds. The potential is there to be a game-changing defender. Um, I do think it takes time for anybody, but I would say, like, it's more likely that he becomes a game-changing defender than that he becomes a white side type guy, but not by 
uh, it's it's not like an 80-20 type thing. It's probably more in like the 55-45 or 60-40 range. But for a 20-year-old yeah. who had never played high-level basketball really before last year and was coming off taking an entire season off, that's incredible. Um, and to find him in the yeah. second round too is pretty incredible. Yeah, and Hassan Whiteside at his peak, actually, I mean, there's a reason the guy got paid the way he did. Right. Like, in that 2016 playoffs, I mean, he was fantastic defensively. And, uh, right, so and I think Robinson has more mobility. Over the last few years, Whiteside, I think. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, but, you know, I mean, if, if, so, and that to me, as we start talking about just this overall team this year and projecting their performance, I mean, I, I I spent more time kind of on the individual players because I think that that's what's more important for these young teams sometimes. But uh, the biggest, I have them projected as a bottom five offense and a bottom five defense. And the way, the biggest way I think I'm going to be wrong about their season and that they're going to go over that 27 and a half. Sorry, I'm focusing on that because we just did that pod the other day, but uh, is Mitchell Robinson is good enough to drag these guys to competence defensively when he's on the floor. That's the biggest way I think that I can be wrong about what I foresee for this next season. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I think a lot of it hinges on not not if he's ready to anchor a top 10 defense. I think like it's very rare for any 21-year-old to be able to do that. But if he can get them to slightly below average rather than you know one of the three or four worst defenses in the league, that's just such a massive step up from where they were last year, even if they're only at that level when he's on the court um and to you know yeah well if his backup is bobby portis uh (laughs) which he's gonna have a lot of work to do to counteract that portis and randall together yeah Uh, i'm i'm someone who is not huge on the value of guys necessarily being able to transfer things through osmosis to other players but i do think taj gibson is a guy who has shown that he has an ability to to convey at least some things about defense to younger guys on his team i think even just the few months that he was in oklahoma city i think you saw a difference in steven adams that year and since then just in terms of his mobility and knowing where to be and when i think um you know carl towns i don't think has gotten to the place that we want him to be as a defender but i do think he's learned things about positioning and there were stretches last year where he looked like the guy that people think he can be and i think gibson is a guy who should be able to help robinson just because of the way his mind works defensively um which is basically the opposite of portis <laughs> so yeah well so what, what's that front court rotation going to look like right i mean you've got gibson has mostly played power forward in his career i kind of like him better as a backup center i mean maybe if you play him with portis portis is the four where he can't do as much damage as he did playing a small ball center for the bulls and wizards last year and gibson plays next to him and you could also just see Gibson kind of falling out of the rotation a little bit and they just go, you know, try to get some more minutes for Knox at the four. Um, or marcus morris there so uh, they have a lot of different combinations do you you have any thoughts on how it might kind of shake out among those four traditional power players that they have yeah i mean this is where it would have been helpful if it was not the jewish holidays on media day and i could have um you know gotten some insight on this i i think that to me it seems like a near guarantee that randall and robinson are going to start in the front court i mean i think it would be a pretty bad sign for one of the two of them whoever doesn't if those guys are not starting in the front court i 
think a lot of what the rotation looks like is going to depend on whether Fisdale decides that you know Morris and Knox are guys who are strictly going to play on the wing or guys who are going to play you know some power forward also. Um, if he decides they're strictly wings, then I think that Gibson is not going to fall out of the rotation and Portis is not going to fall out of the rotation. If he decides that they're guys who you know should play some four, then I think it's possible you see you know some Randall at center with one of those guys in the front court, or you know if when Randall's on the bench, then you see both of those guys maybe playing together, or you know maybe you know Knox and Barrett at the three and the four, and they try to get Ellington out there, or you know Knox and Morris at the three and the four, or something like that. Um, it's a lot of it's going to depend on what, what his conception of Knox and Morris is, um, and even Barrett because he's not a guy that necessarily just has to play the two. I think you could put yeah. him out there with a, a point guard and Ellington, preferably. Um, it's not. I don't think you want to have like Smith, Nila, Kina, Barrett. Um, that might be you know just too much non-shooting out there. Even if like something like Smith, Nila, Kina, Barrett, Knox, Robinson is something that like I do think they should run out there on occasion just to see what it looks like because. Those are the five guys they have on their rookie deals. Um, yeah. And uh, I, th- I think it would help, too, if um, if Brezdakis can get himself into the lineup. Um, I liked what I saw from him watching some of his clips at Michigan, just in terms of, like, he seemed like the role that he played at Michigan is the role he should play in the NBA if he's able to get on the floor. And I think that's always valuable in a role player. He was a guy who was a weak side shooting option and whose best skills seemed to be, like, his ability to attack closeouts. And that's something that I don't think the Knicks have a lot of from their other guys like marcus morris is probably their best closeout attacker um yeah but he's never going to get all the way to the rim he's just going to pull up for a, a two-point yes um and i i think Brezdakis did like a pretty good job of getting to the rim and showed like i mean it's it's sort of cliche to say about a white guy but he had like surprising athleticism but then you look at my um b spark at nba athlete he was like i think the second most athletic wing in the class in terms of the guys who actually did testing at the combine um so that's something i think really encouraging um if he can get a if he can get into the rotation um he wound up as yeah. let me check i'm like pretty sure he was the second most athletic wing yeah it was only nasir little um was more athletic Las Vegas was in the 83rd percentile uh for athleticism among wings since 2000 so hmm. and and i think again yeah with based on the combine testing right based on the combine yeah. testing which is obviously you know there are there are flaws with it it's something that i feel pretty good about saying like if you're significantly above average like that i'm gonna say you're a good athlete if you're significantly below average like a guy like uh jordan pool who rated in the 11th percentile i'm pretty comfortable saying he's a below average athlete it's not something that's an exact science but when you're on the polls like that i do think it's um it's probably i don't know that it's meaningful for your um in terms of performance but i do think it's a meaningful descriptor to say he's an above average athlete or he's a below average athlete if you're at the polls like that and i think if if he can work his way into the rotation just as a guy who brings that skill then that suddenly adds a different little bit of an element you can get another guy who can shoot a little bit and who can make backside defenders pay on occasion just because that was pretty much exclusively what he did in college yeah he had a, a very nice summer league he even took some threes off the pick and roll which uh, i thought was interesting but yeah i mean you don't figure that he's going to be a part of this no, group uh, in the rotation right, early on but by the end they could be right it's very rare for a second round pick yeah. to be in the rotation period it's especially rare to find a second round pick that is in the rotation and makes an yeah. impact um back-to-back years which is what they would have to have done right. after finding robinson and then alonzo trier too who was you sure. know in the rotation for most of last season and made on occasion a 
positive impact. Like it would be extremely rare to find three guys in two years um, outside the first round that can do that. Yeah. Another thing too, we don't need to spend a lot of time on this, but probably worth saying that a lot of these guys, Peyton, Ellington, Bullock, Morris, Taj Gibson, Portis, all of them might not end the season on the team. There's certainly a a chance that those guys could get moved to contenders or bought out or or something like that. Um, What do you see as the crunch time lineup for this group? Yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, (laughs) very much the same as all the other lineups. Like to me, it seems like Robinson and Randall are probably the only guys who are guarantees to be in it. I think that they would very much like for Barrett to separate himself as a guy who needs to be on the court during crunch time. Um, I mean, I think they're going to just put him out there regardless, right? They probably should just to see what happens. Like, what's the downside you lose? Like, you're going to be (laughs) presumably a pretty bad team anyway. And I think just getting him those reps and letting him figure things out is more valuable than having like Wayne Ellington out there for crunch time. Um, the, the question marks to me are going to be, you know, who's at that second wing spot and which po- of the point guards are out there. And I think that, you know, because there's not much separation between these guys, I think it's going to, I think it's going to vary and it probably should. All right. Uh, strengths for this group. Um, I would say just they have a lot of youth, certainly more than they've had in quite some time. And in terms of variability of outcomes, which I think you want when you're not a very good team, that's a strength for them just because you have so many guys who you don't necessarily know what you're going to get. And then I think that they're a very athletic team. Like Robinson is one of the most athletic players in the league. Randall, um, you know, despite his, his short arms and the fact that he plays mostly below the rim offensively, he has a lot of mobility. He's a very good athlete as well. Even a guy like Portis, who, you know, just doesn't do very much defensively. He's still a good athlete. Uh, Smith. I, I would, I would disagree with that. I don't think he's a good, good athlete. Uh, I mean, personally. it's offensively. I think the uh i mean i don't know he can't he can't really move laterally or jump that well unless he's got like a head of steam to go up off of one foot Um, there are some times where you do have a head of steam to go off off of one foot (laughs) and then then obviously yeah i mean just relative when i say like relative to other power forwards and centers i don't view him as like any better than average at best but anyway that's 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 fair i mean it's dennis smith obviously is like you know the term nuclear has been used to describe his athleticism like i don't think you know barrett is that level of athlete but i don't think he's a horrific athlete i think that there are some you know, top end speed questions, but I do think you've seen some videos like where he can like get up and go up and, and, and get the ball. And certainly I think when he goes for rebounds, he shows that too. Yeah. And when he, I think rebounding is going to be like probably their number one strength. Yeah. Between, between Barrett and Randall and Robinson and even like Taj Gibson, uh, is a good rebounder. And, uh, specifically he's a very good box out guy when he's on the court. Um, rebounding should probably be a strength for them too. Um, and and by the way, that can can help defense. Yeah. Do you think they'll be good in transition? I think they should be good in transition if they actually get out and run. But some of that will depend on who has the ball in transition. Um, you know, the, the young guys are obviously likely to make mistakes in transition, but those are also the guys most likely to get out on the break for them. Like Dennis Smith is probably the most likely guy to get on the break, but he's also, yeah. you know, prone to making mistakes out there. Um, I think Randall leading the break on occasion is something A, that he likes to do and B, that you know when he gets in certain matchups can be pretty good at um yeah. and and particularly him and Barrett are guys who because of the way their games in the half court are so much based on power and the Knicks will probably have cramped spacing i think th- those two guys in particular should make an effort to push 
because that's where you can use your power and not have as many guys between you and the rim that's a, it's a great point i think rj is most effective in transition you know going against the point guard who's back and just basically going right through him like i think that's and he's he's a good defensive rebounder randall obviously is is a power player so yeah i mean i i hope that they can be good in transition and, i'm not sure they will be but i mean particularly too yeah. like that will help them get to the line and rant uh barrett has not been a very good free throw shooter but if you're a guy who because you are so dependent on your power game in the half court and because the cramping is going to be spaced and you still want to be able to score the cramping is going to be spaced that's 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 like that's even a new level of ter- terrible terrible spacing oh, uh, but uh, I, I think- we know it's we know it's going to be really cramped, but it'll be like a space <laughs> cramping. <It'll> be- <laughs> Um, that was fantastic yeah um i'm tired um being able to to get to the line and get opportunities at least for easy points i think should be very valuable for him early on yeah i mean i think david Fisdale should be doing the you know what dave yeager did last year with the kings he should yes. scream himself hoarse to push the ball every single time they get a rebound because yeah i mean the, i think their half court offense is going to really really struggle here um i think that's especially true by the way yeah. because so many guys seem like at least deserving of being in the rotation and if you're a team that's running and gunning all the time you could justify saying to someone like marcus morris like yeah, we're only playing you 22, 24 minutes a night, and that might be less than what you want, but we're running up and down playing 110 possessions a game. So it's, you know, it's, it's a little bit different than if you were, you know, playing for a Brad Stevens team that's playing at 95 possessions a game and you want to get your 26, 28 minutes. You can force more guys onto the court if you're playing super fast all the time. Any other strengths come to mind? I think that's. Uh, yeah, I think that's probably that's it. Kind of um, I it. guess suppose uh, like front court depth. They do have a lot of guys who can play at the four or the five. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I do think that at least looking at this roster, while uh, they have a lot of guys, I'm dubious about many of those guys. But other than Robinson and maybe Randall, you know, I don't see an injury that's going to just kill them. You know, uh, maybe Morris because he's really their only two way guy. At, on the wing if he's you know and yeah, and i think just in terms of like their future hopes depth at power forward we yeah. can <laughs> definitely depth at power forward <laughs> <laughs> big strength yeah there. i mean i would say like just not that it would kill them necessarily on the court but i think it would take a lot of the wind out of their sails if barrett were to get hurt too yeah i think they actually might be better if he got hurt but uh but yeah i mean it would be a bummer just because regardless of what i think of him the way this team is going to succeed in the next few years you know he's the their biggest hope Mm -hmm. in that regard weaknesses we've hit on a lot of them yeah the spacing the experience defensively they don't really have like a high-end stopper guy defensively um and they'll also they don't really have that high-end creator i mean you look at the primary creators on this team exactly where i was going to go like i think to me that's been sort of the big week the big underrated weakness of the team for a long time is that they have not really had anybody who is like a high-end playmaker um probably their best playmakers and passers on this team are in some order randall barrett and smith and you know i think smith has shown and not necessarily an ability to be a consistent playmaker but there are flashes there but randall might be the most consistently good passer on the team and that's not a good sign in terms of them being able to to play a sustainable offense in the half court and then just you know based on what the kind of offense fisdale liked to run in memphis and the kind of offense that he came from running 
when he was in Miami, they want to be a team that like, you know, shares the ball, gets ball movement and player movement. The roster they have is not really conducive to that given the lack of playmaking they have at so many positions. Yeah. And that's why as we get into predictions now, they've got and this is one of the worst shooting teams in the league most likely i mean they have if they really try you could maybe get some lineups out there that would be like average shooting but you know those you know rent you start off with randall and robinson and none of the point guards being able to shoot well that's three positions you're not getting any shooting from you know, that, that's that's not a good start uh and then you throw in that ferret is going to play a fair amount that you know i think wayne ellington just doesn't have the cachet to play a ton and and you know marcus morris is really maybe their only average three-point shooter i think he's due for a little regression yeah i was about to say like boston last year his uh his early season shooting masked a uh a pretty big decline uh over i don't know if it was the second half but like maybe after the new year um yeah so that's a big concern for me it's just you know the offense maybe randall like he, he is individually pretty high usage rate you know it was a pretty much a 20 and 10 guy last year was efficient so now i don't know how much he sets things up for others but at least he's using possessions that he can be pretty efficient with um now with the spacing that they're going to have maybe that's not going to work as well you know in alvin gentry's system at least they space the floor for him and let him go to work a fair amount i don't know how much new york is going to be able to do that for him but uh yeah and it just i think rj to me is a pretty good bet to be 500 true shooting or below um you know dennis smith's been right around there in his career peyton's been right around there nilkeen has been right around there Knox too uh, um yeah yeah Knox. i mean there's just so many guys and so either those guys are gonna have to get better or they're gonna not play or they're gonna kill the offense yeah i mean i think it's pretty likely that they're um a very bad offense i think the what will make a lot of the determination of whether they are you know a bottom two or three offense or a bottom 10 offense is whether they could get you know an improvement in shooting from the young guys like if dennis smith can get into the even like into the 520 or 530 range in true shooting and same with Knox, like that's such a difference from where they've been for the most part in their careers and that just it takes you from a atrocious to below average and that when you're talking about the bottom of the league that's pretty valuable yeah i mean when i went through it i had them as the number 28 offense and the number 26 defense just trying to rank them relatively and uh second to last tier on offense and last tier on defense as i said i think the defense has the greater chance for improvement mostly on the back of robinson but again as you go through the defenders on this team i mean it's basically gibson who i don't know how much he's going to play robinson you don't think gibson and robinson are going to play much together uh and then marcus morris is really more of a power forward but he's okay defending power wings Mm -hmm. one-on-one but you know he doesn't really make plays as a help defender he's i think he's miscast as your your primary defensive option on the wing against anybody with some quickness uh so yeah i mean they don't really have anyone at the one and the two who can guard anyone other than nil Kina. again it's questionable how much he's going to play and he could kill the offense when he's out there so i i I, i'm thinking again you know pretty tough to see them getting out of the bottom five in defense unless robinson is just like unbelievable yeah i have i would say more uh not necessarily optimism but i think that there's a significantly greater chance that the defense is not atrocious than that the offense is not atrocious yeah, uh, I, yeah, I don't know. It's tough because I mean they do have guys on offense who at least can create shots. Yeah, I just you think know, this, it's not like this, they, there's just going to yeah. be no space for anybody to operate. Like, yeah, unless 
and and certainly there's a chance that guys take you know steps forward shooting wise um but the the likelihood of them all taking steps forward and those things happening at the same time and being able to provide enough space for their guys who can create offense on their own just seems kind of low maybe they would go to some lineups that have randall at the five and morris at the four and then that maybe that's how they could actually get to some competent groups uh, offensively but again i mean i just you know how much they're going to do something like that to is uh i wouldn't count on that happening a ton uh, but that might be the way that they could find a level of competence on either end i mean at least to, to put out a unit there that can actually be competent on one end and uh and we'll see again how important robinson is, ends up being to what they're doing in terms of actually winning basketball this season i'm, I'm interested um, just to see by the way yeah. like what his minute load is you know last year i think he played yeah. like 20 minutes a game i don't expect he's ever going to be a guy in the you know mid to high 30s but if he gets into the mid to high 20s this year i think that that makes a pretty big difference for them defensively just because there's really no one else at center at least unless they're going to play gibson yeah. at center that is going to be able to anchor the back line yeah and and you would expect that he's probably only going to play about half the game to start because they just have these guys who sign there you know portis is kind of a big ego mm-hmm. gibson you know again you would think maybe he just signed for eight million dollars and to come home but he probably should des- he deserves to play probably i think that'll be an interesting one too of like if it is a question of gibson or portis i just think gibson is so much better than portis uh personally that and portis to me now the counter argument to that is who the hell else is going to provide some spacing at the, right. the four and I was the five say, but, portis can kind yeah. of shoot and gibson mostly can't uh yeah i mean portis can only shoot i mean he, he's but he's kind of more of a gunner than a spacer right. at least he has been so far in his career you know he's he wants to get mid-rangers he, he wants to be more of an attacker he's not going to just stand out at the three-point line and get his man out of the way he hasn't done that as much mm-hmm. in his career um all right, let's, let's do some predictions here. Um, I will start, and I'm going to predict this group for a 25 and 57 record. Um, so I uh, I think that this is the first time I'm actually going higher than you on this. Oh, baby. I went 27 and 55 because of my uh, <laughs> my research from a few years ago that says that um, teams that win between 14 and 20 games averaged 17 wins and then uh, improved on an average to 27 wins. I'm just picking them to hit. Hey, look, pal, I don't care what. <laughs> the what happened with the 11 and 71 1998 denver nuggets how does that even affect anything yeah well i mean one of the teams included in that sample was the uh the 1996 spurs who lost david robinson in 96 and then drafted tim duncan and got robinson back and won like 50 something games the next year so yeah i think 50 56 if my uh but back when when i was a teenager my memory was actually yeah. good and, the, and they uh the, they threw off the, the sample a little bit too so yeah um yeah so tw- you're 27 i'm 25 uh what do you see as a best case scenario best case is probably like in the mid 30s like 33 to 35 i don't see how they can get higher than that just with the the unlikely prospect of them being an above average offense like even to get into the 33 to 35 i think they would just have to be like you know the 20th best offense and 20th best defense or something like that i think even that is pretty unlikely yeah, but I'll, I'll go uh, 32 wins for that, I would say, um, as my best case scenario. And maybe I'm just – and how does that happen? Well, it, 
it comes down to what we've been talking about with robinson just absolutely popping defensively and uh, randall is just gonna have to blow up offensively i really i mean and maybe barrett will just be so much better than i think he's gonna be i would say uh, it's a combination of you know robinson anchoring the defense randall working out really well offensively and then just getting better shooting from from smith and knox and frank and even peyton like it it depends on and also just them giving up on the guys I, I, like they do have some outs here with this group at least right of like okay yeah maybe they've they've got 12 guys here and you know they signed six guys and maybe only two of them are good but they could just not play the four that don't work out as opposed to just pl- trying to play all 12 of these guys or whatever it is so that maybe you could say hey they're if they can get the guy now it's going to take them a while to figure out who's playing well and who isn't you know that's that's going to be part of it too but may- maybe that's a reason to say hey they just have so many guys that a few of them could exceed expectations then you could just not play the ones that don't but I, you know i don't necessarily trust them to I do was that say, now that i think about it um maybe the most realistic case for 35 ish wins would be you know because you mentioned the kings earlier would basically be dennis smith taking the De'Aaron fox leap and just driving so much fast break offense that they wind up winning games by just beating teams on the break um i don't think that's necessarily all that likely i so so yeah yeah alfred payton opening day starter confirmed yeah i uh (laughs) <laughs> I, I was much higher on Fox than Smith coming into the draft. Fox was like my third favorite guy. Yeah. I, I and I I liked Smith better. Yeah. I was uh, I've been quite wrong about yeah, that. So I mean, far. I, Fox was like the only guy that I was right about in that draft. So like, yeah, that was uh, that was a tough one for a lot of us. Yeah, uh, like I think Josh Jackson was like my second favorite guy. So oh god, yeah, yeah that's he's the one guy I actually was really right about. Yeah, it, it, I think it was Fultz, one. Josh Jackson, and Fox were my three top guys. <laughs> Which great job, Dubin. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I think that that might be actually the most realistic path because it's it's not like the Fox that we saw last year was presaged by the fox that we saw two years ago when he had like the knox rookie year right yeah it was definitely a, a struggle for him all right so worst case scenario worst team in the league uh, yeah i mean i i i do think there's a floor for this group just with some of the vets that they brought in but yeah 23 wins i would say 20 nah, let's call it 22 yeah i would say like a five game improvement from last year right i was gonna say worst case is 20 so we're like i have a wider range than you do um yeah and, uh, like the higher end is higher which is probably smart lower. actually i'm i'm too now granted when i do these predictions i, I regular listeners know this i'm i'm kind of more predicting what's their uh point differential what record would their point differential indicate right i mean it's it's really impossible to say oh yeah you know i think they could have the quality of a 32 win team but then they win four more games than expected in their 36 like that's that's really impossible to predict so i'm trying to just kind of get to like the true quality i would expect a team like this to underperform as point differential just because it's unlikely that such a young team um does really well in close games um yeah i mean i've never seen any indication that there's rhyme or reason to who underperforms and who overperforms except that the wolves underperform in close games and to their point differential every year yeah (laughs) no matter who's on the team they've done it they've actually underperformed their point differential 11 of the last 12 years the only time they didn't was two years ago when they performed exactly at their point differential (laughs) yeah and that's the one year they've made the playoffs and that's bad um all right, so you you're at twenty for worst case. I, I'm at twenty two. I right, uh, well, let's get you out of here. Where are you going to be working this year? Where, where can we keep up with your stuff? That that zone defense article, which you may have plugged a couple of times, uh, was really good. So that's uh, the type of stuff we're looking forward to reading from you again this Thank year. Thank you, man. I appreciate that. Um, I'll be all over the place. Uh, I'll be at the step back. I'll be at five thirty eight. I'll be at dime. I'll be at you know whatever other place wants to take my work. Um, 
Yeah. All right. And uh, J.A. Dupin5, am I doing that right from memory? Yes. Is, is the Twitter handle. All right. Well, thanks so much uh, for joining us. And uh, hope you can make it. We missed you at the Caesars eat I know. I was going to ask about that. Like, the, uh, I guess it's the, the Nets kind of screwed up my plan. Um, basically, I, uh, I had planned to move at the end of July this summer. Um, so I decided not to go to Vegas because it was going to be too much of a time crunch and doing too many things all in a row. But then, you know, within two days in July, KD and Kyrie signed with the Nets. And then the, literally the next day, my building sent me an email that said they were not going to be able to raise my rent as much as they thought they were going to. And I was like, I mean, I guess I live two blocks from, you know, Barclays. It's going to be a circus. I might as well just stay in this place for another year. And then I wound up not going to Vegas for essentially no reason. <laughs> yeah uh well next year we could make up for it yeah but ben taylor joined the group this year he is uh definitely uh, adds a new dimension because he's one of these like wants to just eat for like three or four hours but like eats really slowly oh that's he, he complained because we, we got there at like 8 8 15 p.m and he complained that like when it closed at 10 he like didn't have enough time <laughs> so <laughs> oh man that's fine i'll uh so yeah maybe we'll we'll have to uh we we might have to skip the nightcap and get started earlier this year I mean, but, honestly uh, i would go at like four o'clock <laughs> <laughs> yeah well especially towards the the end when like nobody's playing anymore hopefully summer league will be better next year all the all the people who didn't play it was kind of well, supposedly kinda people but, like this draft class so that would be nice yeah oh the 2021 yeah. Yeah, that's uh, I'm a, a mere six months away from watching my first film. Yeah, I mean, I don't know anything <laughs> about any thoughts. of these guys other than one of them is one of the balls. And there's like a lot yeah. of point guards. I was looking at Gavoni's uh, initial rankings, and there's like six point guards in the top nine, which for the team that we just talked about is nice. That's true. All right, thanks again. Uh, kept you for way too long here, and uh, looking forward to catching up throughout the thanks season. Thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. So, of course, with the NBA season upon us, I'm back to my usual routine, really reading three or four hours a day of NBA pieces, trying to find those people that I really respect, whose opinions I know I can trust because I can't see every game. And a huge amount of those people work for The Athletic. I could not do my job without The Athletic. And with NBA season starting, if you do fantasy, if you're just a fan of the league, it's completely indispensable at this point. It's an example. I was preparing for the Grizzlies podcast that I'm going to do next week. And I was like, hmm, I haven't seen anything on Twitter about what their rotation is going to look like or, or who's healthy there or who isn't. And so, oh, maybe I'll go on The Athletic, click on Memphis Grizzlies and Amari Sankofa, 12 takeaways about the Grizzlies media day. And I learned a ton of stuff about who's going to be healthy and who's not, where Jean Morant is in his recovery from knee surgery, that Josh Jackson is not only starting the season in the G League, but that he has a path to joining the Grizzlies later in the season if he clears certain benchmarks and that there's even a possibility that he could be a roster casualty, even though he has that huge guaranteed contract. I mean, they're just that's just a, a small example. You may not be a Grizzlies fan, but they're, that level of detail is there for every single NBA team. And they have an awesome national NBA staff as well. Sham Sharania, David Aldridge, Sam Amick, Zach Harper. They've got the best in the Bay Area with my friends, Ethan Strauss, uh, Anthony Slater, Marcus Thompson, Tim Kawakami. And of course, fantastic coverage uh, of other sports, hockey and football, baseball, the baseball playoffs going on right now. They even started English Premier League coverage. And the way to get started with them, if you haven't already, theathletic.com slash capspace will get you 40% off a yearly subscription. 
Easy to remember slash cap space because it's something we talk about all the time here on the program. 40% off a yearly subscription comes out to $2.99 a month. And once again, that link, athletic.com, theathletic.com slash cap space, theathletic.com slash cap space. Don't forget that slash cap space URL to let them know that you came from us. All right, let's talk some Houston Rockets with Rahat Hook, who now your fifth year. Yeah, I guess because you've been doing it from uh, from the very start, uh, joining the program. So uh, awesome to have you on again, man. Hey, Nate, thanks for having me. Yeah, I was uh, I was just thinking earlier, is this the fifth year? Is this the sixth year? I, I know I, I've predicted an 82-0 record every year, so it's kind of... <laughs> kind of lost track there do you actually remember what your prediction was last year i have i have it in my handy spreadsheet of doom here i just know that i've predicted uh way too many wins every single year as you probably would expect well i was uh, i was up there too yeah so you had 62 last year i had 59 okay so okay um yeah i don't think we're either of us are gonna be that high this year but where i wanted to start is talking about this team last year other than russell westbrook for chris paul they actually have perhaps the most continuity of any contender and so with this group that they put together towards the end of the year how did they look and uh you know and we can use that as a baseline to see you know whether we think that's going to translate or not but just to establish that baseline how how was this team when they finally put the group together that ended the season yeah i thought aside from from james harden from james harden's uh production last year i thought the big story of the rocket season was the 25 games after the all-star break when they were second in offensive rating second in defensive rating and first in net rating and so as you said they have more continuity than than any other contender in the West, you're basically, aside from swapping out CP3 for Westbrook, you're bringing back your core seven, essentially. And so uh, you expect everything to just, uh, you know, sort of translate over in, in terms of there, obviously there's going to be uh, the growing pains that I'm sure we're going to talk about in a bit, but you're not going to be wasting time the way that you did last year where you're tinkering around and you're wasting time trying to fit in Carmelo Anthony and guys like that, seeing what fits. You're not going to have those issues. And so I do think that maybe they're not going to get off running the way that they were in those last 25 games. Um, it, it's obviously going to take a little bit of time for, for for Westbrook and James Harden to figure things out. But but I don't think you're going to see the slow start that you saw last season. I, I think it's going to be closer to, to the All-Star break. Yeah. And at 20 and five uh, after the break, uh, almost a 12 net rating in non-garbage time per cleaning the glass uh, with that group. And so you mentioned the idea that, hey, they're not going to have to be messing around. I'm a little bit less sanguine on that just because I think the back of the rotation and, you know, Tony doesn't like to play that many guys, but presumably they're going to try and make sure that everyone is fresh for the postseason. You know, I do think they have some potential holes here. You know, Daniel House did it for a couple of months last year. It wasn't that good in the playoffs. It got out of the rotation against the Warriors. Gerald Green could just be done uh, and just backup center is tyson chandler and a guy that you can't pay it's her play due to luxury tax reasons because of the nay and i say hartenstein so i do think there are a few rotation spots here that are a little unsettled and if those guys don't work out they of course have the ammunition to go and i i trust daryl morey after last year to find 
those options to get this team to where it needs to be what by the time the playoffs roll around but i i am a little bit worried about the lack of established options here from a depth standpoint yeah and i think i think d'antoni also said this year to your point that he's uh intending to extend the rotation to 10 players and so you know there are question marks on the back end uh, i'm more referring to the front end those core sure. the, those core seven guys but you are you are absolutely correct i mean the the backup center position you're looking at probably a combined 90 years of age between Nene and Tyson Chandler. Can Hardenstein <laughs> finally break through? The guy that I'm really big on that I hope that they give a chance to uh, this year is Gary Clark. Uh, so we'll talk a little bit more about him later. Sure. But you're you're absolutely correct. Daniel House uh, was atrocious in the postseason. Uh, Gerald Green, I, I think I've lost more hair watching him than any other player in recent <laughs> history. So th- there are question marks there at the back end. You're absolutely yeah. correct. And it's, and, and, and it's a shame with Gerald Green that like you don't like when he makes one of those shots, you don't regrow hair. Like it only goes in, in one direction. <laughs> At least it may regrow until the next Gerald Green possession. <laughs> um, uh, sorry, you, you were going to say something else there. I, I had to get that incredibly witty quip in there. <laughs> no. Uh, yeah. I mean, you're absolutely correct on the back end. Um, and it, it, it's, it's a long season as you've noted. And so um, there are those question marks for the Rockets. Well, so let's get, of course, now to the other major change, which is Russell Westbrook for Chris Paul. And putting aside the issue of whether that was a good trade or not, considering the long-term assets and maybe what else could have been done with those assets had they not done this swap. Russell Westbrook's on the team now. Chris Paul is gone. Is Russell Westbrook an upgrade over Chris Paul in your mind? So uh, I know you follow me on Twitter. I, I don't know if you got a chance to to catch any of my thoughts. I absolutely, well, absolutely. well I, I did. I did see that with you and some others. There's been a, a slight bit of cognitive dissonance over uh, now having uh, the uh, usurper of the 2017 MVP on your team. Let me put it this way, Nate. I had an absolute meltdown when the trade happened, <laughs> um, and I've, I, I've. I, if you want to put it this way, I've convinced myself of the trade because that's what we do. Um, and so <laughs> I've, I've come around to it. I've, I've tried to find reasons why I like it. I have to find a way to be optimistic about it. Um, it, but I, I, you're absolutely correct. I hated the trade when it happened. I was one of the biggest Chris Paul fans that you would ever find even before, uh, he became a Houston Rocket. I, I've routinely cited him as probably my favorite player in the NBA. Just the, the cerebral impact that he had on the game. I just have always viewed, uh, Russell Westbrook as literally the anti Chris Paul. And so, uh, it was, it was a difficult trade for me. But at the end of the day, yes, you are. You're getting four years younger. And so Chris Paul, even if he is a better player, which I still, I maintain that I still do think that Chris Paul is a superior player to Russell Westbrook. You're, you're getting a player who is going to actually be available. And so it doesn't matter if Chris Paul is better when he's available if he's not going to be available. Um, and so I think that's really what it comes down to. You're extending the window for the Rockets, but there are going to be questions. It's not nearly as clean of a fit as it was with James Harden, where Chris Paul was above 40% as a three-point shooter. Uh, Russell Westbrook might be the worst volume shooter in NBA history. Um, so there's questions all across the board. So yeah, I've, I've convinced myself of the trade. I think long-term it, it makes sense, um, but it, it took me a while to get there. 
Why do you think that Chris Paul is better than James Harden even now? Chris Paul better than James. Or, I'm sorry, sorry than than Russell Westbrook. My bad. I, I just think defensively he's still better. I just think the the impact he makes in terms of decision making, um, being able to spot up and shoot off the ball. I, th- I think it's just a cleaner fit with James Harden. I think what Russell Westbrook though brings is he's going to be able to help the Rockets in terms of their biggest two weaknesses. I would say they are the slowest, uh, one of the slowest paces last year. I think 27th. They were one of the worst defensive rebounding teams in the league at 29th last season. So I think that's where you uh, you expect uh, some improvement there. But overall, I just think the decision making that Chris Paul brings, and I think the fit with James Harden, I think it was much better. Yeah, I, certainly. I agree with you with him helping those two weaknesses, especially on the board is something I, I hadn't thought of it until we started talking here. But I think that's a, a great point that that was really their Achilles heel when it was really bad for them defensively early on in the season. They just couldn't get a defensive rebound. And that's, I think, part of why they moderated and went away from switching against every single team because they just were getting in some awful matchups under the boards um yeah i'd be interested to see whether they go with back to more switching now with westbrook having maybe a little more energy than paul i thought the other reason they went away from the switching was just asking chris paul to bang like that every night against bigger players might have been just too much for him if they're trying to preserve him but yeah i i'm not going to tell you that i know for sure my thought on it at the time of the trade was this definitely makes them better for the regular season for the reasons you mentioned that russell westbrook is a much better bet to just play more play more minutes play more games than chris paul but that perhaps chris paul and also paul is more likely to decline a ton this year than Westbrook even given that Paul has more of the old man game than Westbrook you know he as you said four years older but I did think that maybe if Paul could just maintain it and bring it at the absolute best level that he was capable of in the playoffs that maybe they're giving up a little bit of playoff upside now the other thing that's worth considering though is Russell Westbrook has never really had spread pick and roll around him the few times that he was able to go to that in Oklahoma City with Steven Adams a pretty good pick and roll center with legitimate NBA spacing around him it looked pretty darn unstoppable now that was a couple years ago Westbrook's not the same player as a couple years ago if he were he wouldn't have been available uh but what do you think of the idea that Westbrook could just be better than he was in Oklahoma City in this Houston system yeah and I don't have the numbers perhaps you do but they they look pretty phenomenal whenever the Thunder historically were able to surround uh, lineups with Westbrook and Adams with shooting. And so they've never had what they're going to be able to put around Westbrook with this Houston team, the type of shooting that they have. And so, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And um, not even not even the shooting, but I just think like the idea that this is what we're doing. You, you get out of the way to the three-point line if you are not involved in the action, you know, and we're going to have one guy coming in and setting the screen, or they might even have, you know, a five-out look with uh with pj tucker i mean the the idea i think the personnel and also just the philosophy as well like mike d'antoni is not going to deal with having a guy who can't space the floor absolutely absolutely 100 agree um so yeah i'm really interested to see westbrook in that type of a system i think one of the issues has been he hasn't gotten to the basket or the foul line as much and another thing is that his mid-range jumper and his three-point shooting has kind of deserted him to the extent it exists but really particularly the mid-range jumper i mean that was something that was a real weapon for him that quick pull up 
from the elbow that has kind of lost now i'm interested to see whether he still takes that or whether they're just saying no you need to just shoot threes all the time and then we'll see how good that three-point shooting is because that's that's something i don't think those are going to be that much more open when he's on the ball when he's off the ball then maybe you know maybe and maybe they tell him hey you need to either get all the way to the rim or you need to set guys up for three-pointers and you know again i think he's he's very much a guy who wants players to be in certain spots where he knows where they are they can kind of set piece it in the half court uh when he's not running and so i think this will really play to his strengths here I'm, I'm just very interested to see how much that can mitigate for some of these weird shooting struggles that he's had the last couple of years and and i think it, you you mentioned what he does off the ball and to me that's really that's the big question yeah for zach lowe has been talking about that as like one of his like burning questions just what does russell westbrook do what, when someone else has the ball what do russell westbrook and james harden do in 2019 2020 when they do not have the ball uh and rockets fans are going to hate me for saying this um but people have compiled clips of them moving without the ball when they were together in okc they're saying the right things but they were completely different players back then than they are now they they had a lot Uh, more energy back then for one there they were not the supersized stars that they have become they've turned into now and so you can't i can't help be but be skeptical and worry uh and expect that this is going to be nothing but a your turn my turn sort of thing you know they're again they're saying all of the right things but i have to see it and to this point we haven't seen any evidence so far of either of these guys being willing to move off the ball yeah i mean in okc they had some pet sets that they would run like with westbrook screening for kevin durant for example you know that's something that maybe they could get back to that type of action but yeah i mean we've been hearing in houston basically ever since james harden became their superstar that they need more ball movement and they've never gotten it and that's through three different coaches so i'm guessing that a lot of that is just that that's how james harden wants to play and guess what against 95 percent of the league james harden will kick your ass whether you move the ball or not so yeah and it it was that was allegedly what chris paul's big gripe with james harden was which eventually forced him out that james harden was undermining him during chris paul's possessions not really making himself free off of the ball and so what makes us think that that's going to happen with westbrook just because they're such good friends now i have every reason to hope that it works out and like you said i think they're going to be so good otherwise that it's not going to matter until they face the Clippers or someone like that. Um, and so my worry is that it, it, here's really my big worry for this season as someone who follows the Rockets is that they're not going to really need to turn it up in that way until it's too late. And so I, I worry that they're going to get away with these bad habits throughout the regular season, be able to coast to the first or second seed because they're going to have such good health. Uh, and then once they face the Clippers, I, I don't know if it's going to be too late on that end. Yeah, and there's a there's a lot of other teams out there that I think could give them some problems too. And I guess your your question, the one question you have is, well, is James Harden going to be a lot more stoppable now because he has Russell Westbrook on his team? And you know, maybe not. I mean, I don't know if Russell Westbrook's guy is going to straight double team James Harden at the arc. Now, maybe because you have Russell Westbrook out there, the extreme strategy forced James Harden to his right. We're just not going to give you the step back. You have to get inside the arc. And then Russell Westbrook's guy is just going to come and help. You know, maybe that could be the, the strategy that we're going to see more teams employing. Um, certainly some of the success that the Bucks and the Jazz had right, right, the might indicate that. And also James Harden is getting to an age where he's not the same finisher at the rim that he was three, four years ago at, at this point in time. You know, he's not going to go up and, and uncork a dunk uh, 
very often maybe once or twice a year he can get that whereas you know before if you gave him a head of steam he's either getting to the foul line or he's going to score every time but there's not that many teams that have a brooke lopez or a a rudy gobert or that are together enough to say all right yeah we're we're gonna break out this crazy scheme against harden and we're gonna not guard westbrook that's the guy who's gonna help every time in the regular season i agree with you i don't think that we're gonna see this be as much of a problem right absolutely um anybody else uh, that we should talk about here i mean i guess harden you know obviously had a historic season last year was up and down in the playoffs uh, i thought you know he, i thought he had some really good moments especially early in that utah series and it had some big games uh, against golden state but ultimately w- wasn't able to deliver it on the end uh, of games five and six um uh, although i did think the whole oh he didn't shoot enough at the end of game five was a, a little bit overblown but do you think it's possible that he can get even better he's breaking out this one leg three-pointer which was crazy i saw that the other night in their uh preseason scrimmage against uh whatever that was was it shanghai that that they played uh but he's shooting like one-legged three-pointers off his left foot going to his right i mean it's just crazy footwork um you know i I hope he tries to uncork that in games i mean there's no reason in theory why that's a harder shot than the step back it's just it's not something that people have tried but i'm uh do you think that he can continue to get better or is it just you know maybe a gentle decline time for him here i think he turns 30 this year he's he's 30 i i honestly don't know what to expect with him anymore because i think this will be maybe the third year third or fourth year in a row where we've we've all said that there really isn't much room to grow and every year he comes back and adds something else now for sure there's there's absolutely no way that that usage is going to be anywhere near as high as it was last season. And if it is, there's a problem. And so you're not going to see the total aggregate statistics and production that he had last season. But as, as in terms of his overall efficiency, I, I I just can't bring myself, I I don't want to be a fool again. uh, And, and predict that he's he's not going to get even better because uh, there really isn't any indication yet that he's slowing down, even though he should be pretty soon here at turning age 30. Yeah, I mean, just so we have it, 36.1 points a game, 7.5 assists, 6.6 rebounds, two steals. That's a, the one place where he brings value on defense other than uh, guarding the post. And five turnovers per game, 40.8% usage, uh, which is the second highest that we've ever seen, I think, behind Russell Westbrook in tw- that 2017. So, yeah, it's got to go down a little bit. Uh, you know, even Chris Paul was a guy who was in the low 20s in usage at this point in his career. So uh, Westbrook, yeah, he's taken a step back to Paul George, perhaps maybe more than some people realize. Yeah. Uh, but OKC still desperately needed him to create some offense. And so he and he doesn't really you know, he's out there to score and he's out there to, to create. So, yeah, I think now when Harden is on the floor without Westbrook, you know, we'll probably see him go back to that same type of level. I'd be very interested to see what their stats look like when they're not on the floor with each other. Yeah. Uh, but and, yeah, go ahead. And I think D'Antoni mentioned that the plan is for each of them to have the team to themselves for about 13 minutes a game. And so um, you're going to be able to stagger them in that manner. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I absolutely think that usage is going to be astronomical during that time when he's on the court by himself. Um, but obviously you expect to have Westbrook a lot more available than you did Chris Paul last season. The other guy, I'm a little worried about uh, and I'm not saying I'm worried about Harden but the one guy that I am worried about with a potential regression here is PJ Tucker age 34 season he has been basically as good as ever 
uh these first two years that hasn't shown much sign of decline he played 82 games last year 2800 minutes they still you know shot 38 percent from three it gets up uh, those threes from the corner in particular but if he slows down a little bit defensively i mean they are so dependent on him uh, on that end and maybe the three ball stops going in a little bit i think see that as a potential weak point because they just don't have anyone else who can bring what he does yeah he's absolutely due for a decline and there was news over the summer there was discussion about uh an extension for him which i found really surprising given that he's he's gonna be 36 when this yeah well well that i think that news came from his camp i didn't see (laughs) see much i mean that he's already got a non-guaranteed year for next year so i mean for the rockets to extend him on top of that uh you know it to start at age 36 did not seem realistic to me despite the fact that he's been preposterously underpaying that's maybe the greatest contract ever handed out with the full mid-level exception right right and and yeah i mean i I see no reason to think that he's going to be able to continue at this level given what they depend upon him for just the workload um and being able to to defend guys much bigger than him routinely uh entering his see i i think he'll be good at that i think it's more his ability to move his Move feet, his on, the feet on the perimeter that's right. what i'm a little yeah. more concerned about right right um yeah and and what do you think they're going to do defensively you think they're going to go with the the switching one through five are they going to save that for the playoffs do you, well, you, what do you you, you yeah, probably so there was indication last year that obviously as you said they're starting to move away from that but you probably don't even need that this year with golden state potentially out of the picture i mean right I think, and they went back to the switching with right. Golden state so you, uh in that series you you probably don't even need that until you're looking at next season in hell i mean I, I think the clippers they might need it potentially and i think the big question actually from a personnel standpoint clint capella looked so completely overmatched again in the postseason. I mean, I think to me, the interesting question is that once Clay Thompson and the Golden State Warriors get back to full health, do you put Clay, uh, do you put Clint Capella back on the market and try to match up in that regard? Because I, I don't really have any confidence if we're talking about who is expected to regress or improve. I, I lost a lot of faith in Clint Capella in terms of that matchup. And, and so he's, he's completely maxed out his capabilities in terms of what he can be as a player and I think he's perfect for the Rockets in terms of facing off against the other 28 teams in the league but when you're looking ahead and I know I'm looking way ahead here but once the Warriors are back at full strength I think the question is can you rely upon him as a main cog of your team or do you explore the market again and try to match up with those guys once they're back at full health uh, we'll see on that one. I think that I don't expect that to happen this year, but it, that, that'll be an interesting one to talk about next year. But, you know, is Steph Curry, Clay Thompson may not be the same players at that point yeah, in that's time. That's true. That's true. So, uh, you know, those guys will both be, uh, you know, Steph will be 33, 33 next at year. at that point. Um, so anybody you're looking at as a major improvement candidate for these guys? So I know, I, I think you said you were down on him or you were mixed, but to me, really, Daniel House. Uh, oh, yeah. No, I mean, I, I was just trying to factually relate what I what I thought happened last year. I, I didn't really, you know, I, I think he could be an important player for them. I thought that was a good contract that they gave him. And he was he was atrocious in the postseason, as to be expected. I mean, he hadn't really played even half a full season yeah. yet as an I mean, NBA player. But his, his big problem was he couldn't guard Kevin Durant, yeah. and, you know, a lot of people have failed at that. Right. And and even, even on the offensive side of the 
ball. He just looks scared. Uh, yeah. But you look at what he did, his production last season, 42% from three overall. He was you know, way in the high 40s as a starter. But really, the big thing that uh, that stood out to me was that the Rockets had their best uh, stri- rebounding stretch of the year when he was a starter. And so I think right now the plan is to start Gordon. I think perhaps as a, you know, some sense of loyalty, that's the plan. But as the the Rockets' biggest weakness last season was on the defensive boards. I, I think if the Westbrook addition doesn't fix that, I think you'll see Daniel House move into the starting lineup for Gordon just so that they can have a bigger guy uh, in, their, in the lineup. And he did a really good job, obviously, aside from the Durants of the world, but he did a really good job in the switching defense. Uh, great shooter, as I noted. He has a little bit of off-the-dribble ability, good attacking uh, in transition. And so I, I'm really high on him and he's probably really the only guy out of their core seven who has a room for growth. Everybody else is sort of uh, maxed out their their potential, as I noted Capella earlier as well. And so Daniel House, that's really where you're looking for, where you're looking if you're hoping for some sort of internal growth from the Rockets amongst their core players. Yeah, maybe Austin Rivers could shoot it a little bit better. But yeah, I, I agree with you there. I mean, House... This is his age 26 season, so he's not as young as people think. He kind of bounced around for three years or so uh, in both the G League and the NBA before last season. And yeah, he's he's not going to shoot 42% from downtown again this year uh, on 6.5 attempts per game, and that's or, or per 36 minutes, I should say. Uh, but you know, I think as long as he's needs to be guarded out there, he also provides a, a nice job attacking closeout at times when he's feeling it. He can get up for some big dunks. So I think. You know, I really want to see where his individual defense is at. And that's, uh, I guess the, we talked about if there are going to be any scheme changes. So where I wanted to get to now is this team defensively, on paper to me, they're a little bit worse yeah. for giving up Paul for Westbrook. Yeah. I, you know, you're, I, you're in agreement yeah, there? Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think that's probably a controversial point, um, depending on how you rate Westbrook. I think the numbers are a little bit all over the place versus the eye test. But I personally, I think Paul is uh, probably a better defender than Westbrook is, even still at this age. He's, a, you know, doesn't gamble um, and still very strong. Um, and so I, I personally think that is a step down from Paul, uh, Paul back down to Westbrook. Yeah, and Westbrook, I mean, you just, they're just possessions where he just completely falls asleep. I mean, even like critical possessions of the game. And you could say, well, maybe he's can focus in a little bit more on defense because he won't have as big of a load. But, you know, he had Paul George as the number one option last year. And I mean, you know, I remember in that Portland series, he's just like, he's like spending possessions with his hands on his knees for like entire possessions with three minutes left in game five. You know, it's just like, and I worry a little bit that the defense can take a step back because. Now you've got two guys who really are just not that focused on the defensive end between him and Harden. Harden, his effort will wax and wane, obviously, but he can certainly be attacked. He's got a little more intelligence maybe uh, than Westbrook but you know these are both guys who generally are not going to be able to stay with a shooter that uh you know aren't that great at getting back on defense that there's just a, a lot of issues with their effort and concentration defensively some of they have slightly different issues between the two of them but having two guys like that 
on the floor now where you can't just i mean because their whole system was all right we're not going to switch unless james harden's involved and then we're going to switch so now if you have another guy like that westbrook is probably best on ball but you know getting through screens he's not that great so i i'm uh i worry that having two guys like that now in your starting lineup it could be a big problem and that's part of what makes me think that maybe when it's winning time in particular you go back to switching because at least then that's a scheme that both of those guys can execute it's not that complicated you don't need to be quite as with it and there's also not necessarily a team like the warriors that has the shooting and the intelligence to really take advantage of that scheme the way some other team or, or you know or the way they did last year i should say so i mean maybe that becomes the clippers but they're kind of i think they're going to be more kind of iso heavy they don't have a ton of passing on their team so i'm not you don't see that team that just has that level of intelligence to beat that system yeah. and russell westbrook is if you're talking about like in the post or just straight up one-on-one you know probably is a, that's the one place where he is better than paul right and, and as as you just said that team the warriors they're not there the other guy that i think we haven't talked about defensively Clint capella noticeably did take a step back last season on the pro yeah. Um, and that was that was a big part of why they looked so bad overall to start the season. It was really bizarre. I don't know if there was some sort of physical problem there, but well, uh, Tim McMahon indicated that he uh, he had a good time celebrating his new contract. <laughs> um, so we'll see what yeah we'll see what kind of shape he comes into. Yeah, it certainly looked like that. Um, so here's something that I, I'm very interested to see what you say. What is something about this team? And this is a, a team that's been in the spotlight for a number of years now that you feel strongly about that is counter to what the national perception of the team is? I think in the the asterisk here, obviously, as we just discussed, swapping out Westbrook for Paul, I, I think overall, when we're talking about the narrative, I, I think it's a good defensive team. Um, they were second, as I said, second in def- defensive rating after the All-Star break. Um, but they will take a step back this season, I think, from, from Paul to Westbrook. But I think the narrative amongst people who don't really watch things closely, and you see a D'Antoni team and you know that it's... Uh, uh, it's very powerful offensively, but I think the narrative is that they're just a, an awful defensive team, which I don't think that's the case. They're an awful rebounding team, particularly last season, but defensively, uh, that's not fair at all. And I, I think that that's what the narrative has been. Um, and I think another narrative amongst those who are much less informed, you know, the Charles Barkley's of the world, uh, there's a there's an idea that they're a fast paced team, but uh, they're actually the slowest paced team in the you know in the league. Um, and I think Westbrook is going to do a lot for that. You're going to see them completely change things and he's going to help them uh, in transition. And so um, I, I would say yeah. those are really the two things that stand out. I'm really me. interested to see. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you on the defense, I mean, especially two years ago. They're the only team that ever had any kind of a defensive stretch against the KD Warriors. And the switching really flummoxed a lot of other teams, too, uh, despite them uh, or or in addition to them so i really want to see whether james harden is going to run with russell westbrook or not i mean he has a, a history of when he doesn't have the ball kind of just chilling by half court not even crossing half court when someone else pushes the ball up like i want to see if if russell westbrook is pushing the ball is james harden actually gonna at least run to get to the three-point line 
when Russell Westbrook is pushing it, or is he just going to kind of wait back there and yeah. just say, eh, you know, let's see, let's see whether Russ can do anything or not. And, but you know, that's having one fewer guy on the fast break makes it a lot less likely that that fast break is going to succeed. So I, I do want to see whether Harden is really going to actually, you know, cause we haven't seen him really push the ball very much personally. Chris Paul didn't want to do that. So we didn't see him having to run the lane. I, I want to see if he's actually going to get out in transition. Yeah. I, I wouldn't hold your breath on that. The way that I, <laughs> the way that I look at, and I know this is a gross oversimplification, but I, I almost see it as two different teams when Harden will have the ball on the half court versus the the Westbrook possessions, which will just be off the rebound and he'll just go. But uh, they're not going to be able to reach their full potential unless both of those guys are involved in the play. And I, I go back to the question that I brought up earlier. That's going to be the single biggest question mark for the Rockets is what do these guys do when they don't have the ball, when the other guy has the ball? Yeah. And it's, uh, I, I'm just, certainly the coaching staff has been very concerned about that, but these are, eh, at least on the surface, two of the more uncoachable players in the league. And James Harden chafed when Chris Paul wanted him to do some stuff. Now, maybe that was it. Chris Paul isn't known as the easiest guy to get along with either. Either Russell Westbrook has a reputation of just kind of doing what he wants uh, on both ends uh, and resisting coaching. They've wanted more ball movement for years. They've never really gotten that. So, you know, I do think Harden has improved his defense. That's probably something that doesn't necessarily fall into that. So, yeah, I want to see, number one, it's a tough strategic challenge, even if you get guys doing exactly what you want them to do. But then are they actually going to be executing what the coaching staff uh, has in mind? That's going to be a question also. He's he's so good that you almost just kind of have to turn your head the other way with some of these right. issues sometimes. I mean, it just comes with the territory, unfortunately. What do you see as some other playing time lineup decisions that Mike D'Antoni is going to have to make with this group? So the core seven is set. I think we agree. Uh, I think everybody is on the same page with that as your starters are going to be Westbrook, Harden, Gordon, Capella, Tucker, and then your two first two off the bench are House and Rivers. Um, I, I think Nene and Tyson Chandler are going to take turns um, as that backup big. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, Nene, if he plays more than 10 games, they're at risk of him making another are 2.5 million dollars <laughs> so so i mean and also there's this disturbing news which whether it's related to this or not that he has this recurring groin issue he's gonna miss all of camp i mean i i would i think it's greater than 50 percent chance he plays less than 10, 10 games this year i think that's a that's a safe bet i i yeah and and when when you said disturbing news i thought you're going to be referring to anthony bennett who i was i was hopeful that maybe he could revive his career one of the last spots on the roster but it's it's looking like he's not going to make the team having knee surgery um i, I think the guy again that i'm I really hope gets a shot is Gary Clark um, because he's a he's a young cheap player that he does a lot of things very well. He's, a, he's an intelligent player. He plays within himself. He is in the 98th percentile last season among forwards and block shot percentage. And so the Rockets they have a very small team. So they oh, yeah. they actually and it's easy to use the Carmelo Anthony disaster as a barometer. But they got things turned around last season early when they pulled Anthony for. Gary Clark. Now you might well say, well, you know, even a replacement level player at that point would help turn things around. But Gary Clark, he showed a lot on the defensive side of the ball, and so I just feel like it's yeah. very. Important he also for them. So, like hit shots very early, and then I think that like that kind of waned. Am I remembering that correctly? Yes, yes, and and, and, and I mean, and also once Daniel House cracked the rotation.
rotation, that that was it for Gary yeah. Clark. I, I just think that you really need to invest in developing these cheap uh, club controlled guys like Clark and um, and Hardenstein, so that you're not having to rely on veterans in the postseason who might have worn out by that point. And so I really hope that D'Antoni is able to give him a shot because defensively he brings a lot of versatility. Yeah, Clark, I, I was not that happy with what he did in summer league. Uh, and the shooting still is not there. I mean, he shot 29.4% on threes in seven G League games and 29.4% on threes in 51 NBA games. And so my question to you is, I'm not buying that he's going to be a passable shooter this year. I think that's the track record is not necessarily there even for, in college. That, you know, maybe he worked on it all summer and, and it's going to look okay. He'll certainly get plenty of open looks. But is it possible that he can be effective if he can't make that three-point shot? Probably not. I mean, he, he's got to be at, what, 32, 33 to even be playable, I think. Yeah. Uh, my, uh, my, the way that I look at it, it's a little bit different from, from your perspective, perhaps, is that I think that he's not going to be able to develop any rhythm if he's just pulled once he goes into one of those cold stretches like he did. And so I kind of feel like it's an investment that you have to make early on in the season and stick with the growing pains and just give him a chance just to see if he can get to that passable level. And perhaps you might, uh, you might lose a little bit on that overall production for, uh, in comparison to what you might get from somebody else like a Ryan Anderson. But I feel like just trying that out overall in the long term, I, I think that helps you because two years ago, as you might remember, and I, I still remember from nightmares that I have when Ryan Anderson was forced to play two minutes in a critical game seven because the Rockets were just barraged with injuries to key players like Bob Mute. And so they, they were in a game seven with Joe Johnson and Ryan Anderson playing critical second half minutes and I want to avoid that at all costs and so I'm not saying that Gary Clark by no means is he Bruce Bowen but I'm saying that I want the Rockets to just invest in players who are actually going to be uh, uh, passable when it actually matters in the postseason now obviously the Golden State Warriors are not there anymore uh, but you know I'm not going to to uh, to sleep on the Clippers as a formidable opponent so the point really is that I hope that they're more, uh, they take more of a long term outlook to this and they don't just award uh, minutes to, to Ryan Anderson when they can just take a look at some of these younger players. Yeah, although I think Anderson can actually help them potentially. Who knows? He Absolutely. could just be done, but it's, I mean, the, he was pretty good in 17, 18, and then he had that ankle injury. He came back. He wasn't healthy. Um, obviously, was miscast in that playoff series. And then he played seven games or whatever it was, eight games with Phoenix. They shut him down. They traded Miami. And so, I mean, yeah, he's older. He couldn't hit shots for eight games in Phoenix. But, I mean, it would be a precipitous decline indeed if he's just like, you know, can't contribute at all. I, I fully, ex I fully expect him to still be able to knock down shots. And it's interesting. We talk about yeah. the decline when you look at Ryan Anderson's overall career decline because he was a very good rebounder very early on in, in his career with the Orlando Magic. And just as you slowly see the progression, no longer being able to, to uh, attack smaller players on switches. And so he just suddenly just became a completely one dimensional player to where he is now. But I, yeah, I, I still expect him to be able to hit shots. And, and I think he's, I actually, expect that he's going to be a part of the rotation yeah and maybe he would get some time at backup center maybe maybe clark could get some time as a small ball center you mentioned that's that my his hope. block rate yeah. was a little bit better and may maybe that's because i just I, tyson chandler just to me is not it like i think he you know maybe having him in the locker room would be good they've had but they've got plenty of good vets there already and i think he 
just couldn't play enough minutes with the Lakers like there's a 10 game stretch when it looked like he had saved their season because their backup center position was such a disaster last year but then he fell out of the rotation I think because he just couldn't play the minutes and you know certainly Tyson Chandler from 10 years ago would be absolutely amazing for this group but but he's not that anymore and in particular you know they're not gonna be able to do the switching system with him out there uh, or any kind of really getting out on the floor he's just a little bit too immobile at, at this point and and also a huge injury risk but the good news is i think they're fine going in the season like that there's going to be backup center options on the buyout market like it's not it's not the end of the world to me uh that they don't have uh, someone in that position that i mean i carp all the time about how it's an easy position to fill um what about Hartenstein? Can he contribute at all? Or are you giving up on him? Uh, no, I haven't given up at all. I mean, there was, I, I think, one of the, the most fascinating stats last season, very early on, way too early for the, the statistic to mean anything. This was before sample size was uh, meant anything, but he had the highest net rating on the team. And it was, it was fascinating, it, just the energy that he brought. Um, but I, I don't expect that uh, that he's going to make the rotation. Just to go back to Clark, and I know this is this is an issue just way on the margins, but my hope of hopes is that he is the backup center for this team this season. Um, I, I think that the reason that they've carried Danae for the last sev- several years and why they have Tyson Chandler now is because against those matchups, against the much more physical centers, and I know there aren't that many anymore, but Clint, Capel- Clint Capella has kind of been manhandled. And so that's when the Rockets have quickly come in with Danae. Um, but they, they played Gary Clark as their backup center against the Milwaukee Bucks and against the Golden State Warriors. And so I hope that they can extend that to the rest of the league. Um, but Hardenstein, no, I haven't given up hope on him a lot. He's, he's, uh, he's, he brings a lot of energy. He's, he's improved his shooting, as he said to me on Twitter. Uh, he, I think he shot over 50% from three in the postseason. Wait, what, what, t- tell me about that. What happened there? I missed that. So, so uh, there's a lot of discussion on Rockets Twitter about how he can be a, a stretch five. And so I sort of, you know, fired back at that saying, I keep seeing all this stuff about Hardenstein being a, a stretch five, but, I don't see the numbers at all. And he replied to me and said, well, I've been working really hard on it. And I shot X percent in the postseason. I think it was like 45%. And so, you know, good for oh, oh, like the Like the G League postseason. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Right. So good for him. I mean, he's clearly working on it. Um, yeah, and- I- I'll believe that when I see him. He does not. The way he shoots the ball is like kind of weird. I mean, we talked about him in the summer league prospect thing as well. I mean, I think he's a good rebounder, but I don't think he adds a ton of other skills at this point. Now, you know, maybe he improved. I mean, I I think he's got NBA size um, and he plays hard. But yeah, I mean, I'm. I'm skeptical of his ability to, to contribute personally. But if he can shoot the ball, then yeah, I think maybe it becomes a little more realistic. He also can't really move his feet again yeah. in that switching system. And I don't think he's really, you know, much more than an average-ish rim protector. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, um, I wouldn't hold so, my breath on him contributing. Yeah, but, you know, I mean, yeah, I, I guess, especially if he can shoot it, maybe it shouldn't give up on him. Um Who's going to make this team, by the way? The, uh, I mean, we can spend a minute on this, but just the, the end of the roster guys, like who, who do you think is going to make it? Who's going to not make it among some of these non-guaranteed? Yeah. Guys? I mean, I thought, so I think Ryan Anderson for sure, because he has a $250,000 guarantee. So I think that's bigger than some of the other guys that like Ben McLemore and such. Um, so I think Ryan Anderson for sure. I thought Bennett was going to fill out the roster. Um, but he's, he's obviously not. So the other guys, you have Chris Clemens, McLemore. Um, and let me look at the, who else do we have here? Shamori Pons, yeah, William right. McDowell White. Th- a, those those guys yeah. seem kind of more really not too familiar with those guys. Um, 
Clemens has looked, yeah. uh, you know, just really uh, exciting. But of course, I oh, mean, Mike Frazier is the other guy too. Sorry, right, right. Uh, who's I'm, who's come out of their their system? Clemens would be really fun, but obviously, when you have Westbrook and Austin Rivers, uh, he's he's not going to even sniff the rotation. But um, it, it's really, I really don't have a good pulse on what we're looking at here in terms of filling out those those last few spots. Yeah, well, we'll see. I mean, it seems like it is interesting, at least, that there are a few jobs that could potentially be won in camp. And obviously, their tax situation it could matter there as well. Like Ben McLemore. The tax uh, situation controls all, Nate. <laughs> um, crunch time lineup? What do you think? So I think the where you're set, of course, Harden, Westbrook, Gordon, and Tucker, those four, I think, without a doubt, unless Gordon is one in one of those weird stretches where he looks like he's 45 instead of 30. Uh, but after those four, then you just play it depending on matchup. Capella, House, Rivers. Um, you Westbrook gives you a little bit more flexibility the way, it, depending on how you look at it, if this rebounding actually improves right. with him in there, I think that lets you go with Rivers in there instead of you know a bigger lineup but i think you know really that's what it's going to look like that core four and then filling in depending on the the matchups yeah and whether they want to go with tucker at center and then uh, go with house i mean uh, i don't know austin rivers seems like that'd be pushing it a little bit too much we're gonna move gordon to the four uh so it kind of seems like house or capella is the question particularly to me particularly now that golden state's out of the picture and so um you know there's really no need to go that small against any So strengths for this group that we haven't talked about yet. So we did we did talk about the main strength, and you mentioned it actually. And to me, there's two main strengths. There's continuity, uh, which they have more than any other contender, but also durability. So you look at Westbrook and Harden have each only missed about I think 15 or 16 games total over the last four or five years. Whereas you look at the Clippers, and so Kawhi, there's going to be load management there. Paul George expected to miss I think you know the first several weeks of the year and then the the Lakers where Davis has never played more than such and such games LeBron now 35 and so for the Rockets and this is a big you know this is in huge uh, contrast to last season when you had the issue with you just wanting to have Chris Paul and bubble tape uh, the entire season now I think you can and I have to knock on wood before I say this I think with Westbrook and Harden even if there are fit issues I think you're going to be able to get to the finish line just having those guys available that's a strength in and of itself availability is one of the greatest uh, skills that just really is is underrated um, and so so yeah. I think that's really the big thing. It, it's it's such a huge distinction, just such a huge difference from the Rockets and previewing them last year when you were just literally you were holding your breath entering the year with Chris Paul. When is the first? When is the next Chris Paul injury going to strike? I mean, uh, Nate, I, I tell you, every single time that Chris Paul made an aggressive dribble move, I held my breath last season, just yeah. worried about the injury. And so I, again, I got to knock on wood here, but I think durability. I think just even despite despite even looking, setting aside whatever fit issues that there might be, I think just having those guys available is going to be a strength above the other uh, core contenders. Yeah, and you could throw Tucker into that category too. I mean, he basically has never been hurt uh, that I recall since he's been a Rocket. But I, I'm a little bit worried about 
Westbrook coming off of a yet another knee procedure and you wonder if maybe he ends up moving into a different part of his career where he's going to have some chronic knee soreness as well. I mean, that knee has been operated on many, many a time at this point. And this was a minor, supposedly an elective procedure, although, you know, Oklahoma City is not exactly well known for being totally transparent about these injuries when they say it's a minor surgery or whatever. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think odds on you're probably right, but I'm a little bit little bit worried there uh, about Westbrook and Tucker with the with the age issue um yeah it's coming I mean the Westbrook yeah. the 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 drastic Westbrook decline is coming uh we don't know what year it is it's going to be but it's coming and so with that trade it was basically just a calculus that the drastic Chris Paul decline has already come um and so how long can you push that bill off further and how many more years can you buy yourself and so you're absolutely right it's coming what about weaknesses? I think, as I said, uh, really the, the single biggest weakness of this team, defensive rebounding, 29th last season. Can Westbrook help them improve that? Does the trade-off between what you lose defensively, but what you gain on the boards, so what does that do in the aggregate? Um, and so really weaknesses, defensive rebounding, and then the questions over fit that we discussed, it's just not a clean fit at all. And so um, there's just going to have to be uh, gymnastics to try to see if they can put it all together. Whereas with Paul, it, it just seems so seamless at times in that first season before injuries, uh, you know, blew everything up. Yeah, I mentioned the perimeter defense with Harden and Westbrook maybe being a, a problem. Another thing I might look at, is, at least in the playoffs, is turnovers. That's yeah. where Harden, you know, a little bit above average for a, a big superstar. Granted, he had a huge load last year, but I, I find that a lot of times you can really tell his good games and his bad games by whether he's turning the ball over or not and whether teams are making it difficult for him. And then Westbrook, you know, he, he can struggle with his decision-making as well. He can have some of these headlong rushes maybe he can get better because he'll uh, have a little bit more space but he's uh certainly been criticized uh, for some turnover problems so th- those guys can both have games where it looks really bad for them from a turnover perspective and especially against a team like the clippers where they've really got some sharks uh, like leonard and george you know that, that might be something that would come up to bite them a little bit um finishing at the rim you know other than capella who you know can get up for some dunks but he's not a great finisher on non-dunks uh against the bigger guys harden i think has taken a step back there westbrook has never had like great touch he makes up for it with volume and getting there a lot but hopefully that'll continue for him but you know he hasn't been a- amazing there um overall athleticism seems like they're kind of towards the bottom half of the league there um i don't know any comment on any of those there i mean they're probably i would say the least athletic uh of the best teams in the league i mean depending on yeah. how you view lebron at this point but really only uh westbrook stands out to you at this point uh as well i guess capella as well but you look at yeah. the H- other house i guess yeah. too maybe to some degree um looking at the but, other but they're also short i mean i guess it's just the overall like the, yeah they, they don't when you they're both short and they're you know kind of middling athleticism that's like they're that's just, not a great they're just so small and and i looked at, on cleaning the glass uh eric gordon was in the third percentile among in rebounding amongst uh guards and then pj tucker was like in the second percentile i mean they're just they're just so yeah. small and unathletic uh, up front and, and that's i mean that's what did them in last season yeah well i think it's Tucker and Gordon, you know, those guys kind of have those big frames. So if they can just concentrate on boxing out, 
then you've got Westbrook to fly in and go get yeah. the rebound. Maybe that's a way that it looks a, a lot better this year. Um, and that's that's really, yeah. I mean, I think that's what uh, I didn't uh, recognize with Trevor Ariza that he never had uh, great rebounding numbers, but he clearly he was he was boxing out or he was doing something that there was something that Trevor Ariza was providing on the boards that allowed them to be so much better than they were last season. If you if you look at the rest of the team staying uh, basically the same. Um, and so, you know, you look at the discussion heading into last season was that they would take a step back defensively losing Ariza, but they didn't really. If you look at just the after the All-Star break, it was on the boards that they missed Trevor Ariza, just, just so long armed and he was clearly boxing people out. All right. You ready to do our predictions this year? I am. Uh, I will go first. I'm going to say 56 wins for this group. I think there'll be a top five offense. I think the defense can be you know, lower end of the top 10. Um, you know, I, I do think they'll take a step back from where they were in the great days of last season. And probably, you know, when they were, I think, number two, you said. So yeah, I see them kind of being in the eight or nine range defensively. So yeah, I think 56 wins is pretty good. I think they're they're not going to take their foot off the gas in the regular season. This team doesn't really do that. And they're going to really want to fight for the number one seed, you would imagine. So uh, that's where I'm at. 56 wins for these guys. This, and we can talk about the playoffs a little bit in a second. This um, might be the, the closest you and I have been in five or six years now, because I was going to say 57 and 25. Uh, so I have 57 and 25. I think that's going to be good for the second seed. If you want to say what you think will win the first seed this year, but I think 57, 25 gets you to the second seed. And I think they're probably, you know, the first or second best offense. I think they'll probably be eighth or ninth in defense. I think they probably take a step back going from Paul to Westbrook, but I think, you know, obviously they improve on the boards, but so I think a top 10 offense and defense but i think i have 57 and 25 second seed second to the denver nuggets oh that's interesting okay yeah I'm, i i think i'm probably gonna pick these guys to be the number one seed actually but here's what i want to talk about well, let me let me stop you there yeah, let me stop okay. you. So, yeah, so you think 56 and 26 wins the west so you think there's that great parody uh no i mean i think it's just i, I don't think like they're for sure gonna win i think there's any of four or five teams that could be yeah. the number one seed but yeah you know, i'm just not i don't see that like awesome 60 win yeah. team out there yeah. right now but this is a group that at least has a history of playing at that level at times so i, I like them to maybe get to that point uh, compared to some of these other teams um and i like their health a little bit better than some of these other teams uh, as well so and i think they're also with the westbrook joining up they're going to want to get out to the gate early and prove that this is working so i'm uh no i don't think 56 i would imagine the number one seed will be a little bit higher than that but you know i'm just generally a little bit more conservative in those predictions and i think they have the best chance of anybody i mean i think i'm gonna i they they're the only guys that i have winning over 55 games as of now but you know i'll think about it a little bit more i haven't done a lot of those teams yet but when we did our over-unders the rockets and clippers and jazz all are 54 and a half and the rockets are the only one i predicted an over four with among those three yeah my my three teams that i have to think about in it for the contention for the number one seed was houston uh utah and denver i, I think uh, the injury issues and the depth issues for the Lakers and Clippers. I think that's what's going to keep push them a little bit lower in the regular season. So how do you think they match up against 
the other West contenders. Who do you think they're going to handle okay, and who are you worried about? So, I mean, obviously, the the team that you're really worried about is the Clippers when you can throw out Leonard, George, and don't forget Beverly as well. Um, and so that's that's the team that just absolutely terrifies me. Um, and it, it's I can't even really conceive of what LeBron and Davis are going to look like together in that pick and roll. Um, you know, regardless of who they have around them depth wise in a seven game series, and so that's really frightening. I, I don't really. S- Nobody else really scares me that much in a playoff series. Now, I I, I know I said that Denver um, would be the top seed, yeah, but they've always killed Denver, right? Because of the Capella and Jokic matchup. Now, I don't know what Jeremy Grant's addition does there, but well, they can't they can't guard Harden either, right? Right. I mean, that's the other problem. And so, and and part of that is is Jokic, I think too. I mean, they just they they generally my recollection last year is they're bringing Jokic way out on the floor and James Harden might be the best pocket passer of all time and he just hits guys going to the rim every single time against that cover yeah and and it doesn't matter if you have Jeremy Grant there to cover for Jokic because you still have to have Jokic on the floor and they're going to hunt him out Um, and so no one really no one else really scares me that much um, aside from the Clippers really yeah that's uh that's really interesting. I want to think of what that matchup will look like. We've got a lot of time to talk about that. Obviously, Jazz, you're not concerned about that. I mean, they've handled them pretty well, right. but you don't think that more, you know, they gave up a lot of open threes to the Jazz. You think that more shooting and having Mike Conley, could that change things? Yeah, or, I mean, obviously, no? if, if, if those if those start falling more and you expect those two, and yeah, of course, adding Conley, swapping up. But it's not that Rubio yeah. played poorly last uh, postseason against the Rockets, if I recall. Um, and so, um, and, and, and Eric yeah, Gordon. I mean, they, they couldn't hit any shots. It was all of them, really. And Eric Gordon did a really, really underrated job defending Donovan Mitchell. Um, and so I don't, I don't know that I expect that to change uh, on that front. I mean, so yeah, I, I would say I don't know that I'm that concerned about the Jazz. Yeah, I. Th- I, I mean, I, I would probably favor Houston in a series that started right now against the Jazz. I do think that Mike Conley, for all his brilliance, if they do want to switch against him, that he's not really a, you know, a guy who's going to beat switches necessarily. He's also a guy that I think Harden can attack offensively if they want to go with the, the guard guard pick and rolls. But. Rudy Gobert is Russell Westbrook kryptonite. He just completely shuts down Russell Westbrook and maybe it'll be different for Houston, but I, I kind of don't think so. I mean, Westbrook just has no ability to finish against Gobert at the rim. And as I said, the Rockets really are a big tenet of their defense is we know who we're not going to guard and we're going to give up shots and live with it we're going to really help in the lane we're not going to let your best players beat us and if the jazz can throw out uh bogdanovich and ingles that's and right i for- forgot about bogdanovich. mitchell yeah, yeah so so now that certainly gives harden a place to attack on the other end and i also think the jazz just they have experience attacking houston and i thought their defense worked in the second half of that series last year that crazy defense where they force hard into the basket so I, i wouldn't i think the jazz are better equipped this year than they have been in previous years. I don't know if I'd pick them, but I I wouldn't dismiss them necessarily. Yeah, I mean, they've absolutely improved. Um, Yeah, Golden State, I just don't have it at that level this year. Um, And yes, I mean, the Lakers are are just 
what they're going to be from a matchup perspective and how good LeBron is going to be. I mean, when we really get into the playoffs, that's the question that I just, you know, if LeBron James is still looking like the best player in the league in the playoffs, then, you know, maybe the Lakers are, are the favorites. And I do think I probably like the Clippers a little bit better than Houston as of now, but I, I certainly reserve a chance to change my mind. Maybe it just doesn't work out as well as we're all expecting. Wow. So, so let me, let me stop you there. So you, you actually, you actually think that Houston possibly could be better than the Clippers? Cause that's definitely sure. not a pop popular opinion i mean i think universally everybody including me i think everybody expects that the the clippers are going to be far and away the best team in the west i mean just being able to no i wouldn't i wouldn't say far and away at all i think i think they they might end up being my favorite but i don't think it's at all clear i think they're being there's just too much uncertainty there with this group coming together for the first time the health um you know i mean if you're gonna be closing games with lou williams and mantras harrell like i don't know how good your defense could be despite the fact that they have george and leonard and leonard was really good on the ball against Giannis, a bigger guy, but he looked really bad moving his feet throughout a, a lot of last year. So I, I'm not. Well, how do you? I'm not. Yeah. How do you yeah, see ahead. that? And I'm really interested in your opinion. How do you see that defensive matchup playing out uh, in in terms of with Giannis yeah. and George against and Harden and Westbrook? How do you see them attack? How do you see them? Or, or, yeah, Ka- Kawhi and George. Right, and right. Westbrook. Sorry, right. Yeah, that's just. I mean, I don't think Kawhi. I mean, because you'll remember in it was 15-16 when Oklahoma City upset that 67-win San Antonio team. A lot of the game, they actually had Danny Green guarding KD, and they put Kawhi on Westbrook. Westbrook. But I think, and they may go that way again uh, because Westbrook is the guy that you can help off of, and that's kind of... in the you'd that's ra- how they use Kawhi you'd in rather the Toronto have, series. You'd rather it's have cool. Kawhi as a free safety, essentially. To, to yeah, and uh, let him save his ability for offense a, a little bit as well. Um, but I also, you know, him getting over a screen and pick and roll, especially if they're not switching. Yeah, I'm not sure that he's able to do that the same way. Now, maybe he'll just be healthier this year, but he was, he really struggled. And, and they, like, to the point where Toronto was like, no, we can't switch him on to Steph Curry in the finals. Like, they like Steph Curry's just going to kill him. And even when they tried to play a conventional pick and roll defense with Green screening for Curry, he, like, killed right. Kawhi. Uh, so, no, maybe Kawhi will be better this year, I think. So, probably George on Harden, that, to me, would, would be the one. And then, yeah, maybe you just put Kawhi on P.J. Tucker and let him freelance more there. And you could go with Beverly yeah, really, on Westbrook. Westbrook. You know, that's obviously another another way you could go. And who knows what the Clippers rotation is going to be, right? Are they going to go? I mean, the Clippers going with Lou Williams at the end of games. I mean, James Harden's eyes are going to right. get like five times the size of his head if Lou Williams is ever on the floor. Exactly. And he can go at him. So maybe then it's it's going to be Shamit instead. And, and maybe Harden would try and go after him. I, I mean, the more I think about it, I'm glad you asked me that question because I think that's going to be an absolutely fascinating strategic matchup it's fascinating to think about how. That's yeah but i'm not counting out houston there at all uh, i think maybe a lot of people are but you know they also like lost to the greatest team of all time two years in a row and yeah i know kd was out uh this last year but i mean that warriors team was still pretty damn good yep. when they're healthy um all right best case scenario 60 wins and nba championship i would say uh, i would say i don't see them being able to reach that 65 win peak that they were at two years yeah. ago i think that was just uh just such a you know unique situation I, I think best case for them maybe you know 62 um an nba championship um and, and how does it happen i think as we talked about uh, they just they're able to to make it work westbrook and harden are just able to put it together from day one and they think they're they're motivated to to make it work back from the okc days and they just hit the ground running um and then 
everybody just slides into place from the rotation from last season and everybody, uh, you know, they just don't miss a beat. Yeah, I I would add to that that Daryl Morey is able to make a couple more additions. You just, it's tough to win 60 games or over unless you have a ton of depth because number one, in this day and age now, you're basically relying on, um, or, or you're, if you're going to win the number one seed, there's no need to push any harder than you, than you normally would at the end of the season. So generally 60 wins is going to get you to the number one seed. And so now you're not going to push hard. And so you have to have depth if you're going to rest guys to still win games kind of down the end of the season when you have things wrapped up. So that's why, uh, I think if they're going to get to 60, they'd have to shore up that depth a, a little bit because certainly games that Harden doesn't play, um, you're, you would have them in a pretty difficult position and, you know, some of the backups. So if they want to rest PJ Tucker, who probably really needs it, you know, they really have no backup for him at all. So Gordon as um, well definitely needs yeah. to be resting. Uh, worst case scenario? Uh, so as I've said every year here, aside from that one Ty Lawson season, um, I think that when you have Harden, the floor is 50 wins. If he's healthy, the floor yep. is 50 wins. And so, um, I think worst case scenario, probably 52 and 30. It just, if they just can't make it, they can't mesh and they're just winning on the strength of, uh, just pure talent. I think that's, that's your floor, 52 and 30, which is basically yeah, I mean, last maybe, season. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, right. I mean, that's maybe they get down to 50 wins if they're, you know, just number five in offense and, the defense gets back down into the 20s yeah. again they just can't defend uh you know and it looks like more like the first half of last year than the second half of last year defensively i don't expect that to happen but i, I do think there's i'm not going to just pencil these guys in for sure as a top 10 defensive unit and they're uh especially maybe it's just the combined just uh inability to concentrate defensively between harden and westbrook just becomes too much of a tipping point and they just can't defend anymore um you know that that's not out of the realm of possible it's absolutely possible yeah and Losing in the first round, you know, that's uh, that would be, uh, I'd say, that'd be a big disaster, that's for sure. Um, with the taking on a yet an- another huge year of Westbrook's contract and all that they gave up to get him. Any any one of these top eight teams can lose in the first round. I mean, that's just what's so unique about this Western Con. That's it's it's really going to be the most fascinating year that I can remember. Where you literally you're going into the year where I think what maybe six or seven teams can realistically think that they can win the title. I can't remember. A, a, you have to go back to I don't know two thousand and eight nine. I can't even remember the last time when there wasn't a clear cut favorite heading into the season so where can we follow your continued efforts to talk yourself into the russell westbrook trade <laughs> so uh, i'm on uh i'm on twitter at red 94 so that's spelled out r-e-d and 94 and then on the blog of course red 94.net all right i look forward to keeping up with your work uh, throughout the season and uh thanks again this is always a, a fun tradition i appreciate it thanks again nate all right, let's bring in now Spencer Percy, longtime guest on the Charlotte Hornets. I think you've been with us since the inaugural season uh, as well, five years, which is crazy uh, to think about. Uh, but always love hearing what you have to say on the Hornets. How are you doing? Doing great. Yeah. Wow. Has it been five seasons? That's uh, that's hard to imagine. I, yeah, I guess since the, the Hornets have been back in Charlotte. Um, time flies, not because the Hornets are extremely exciting and uh, successful every year, but no, that that's great, crazy. I didn't know that. Yeah, well, I mean, because we're, when would it have been? Yeah, it would have been the, 
right before the 15-16 season actually it would have been the first time that was the uh the high water mark uh, of the uh these the second incarnation of the hornets and indeed it was that that's probably when i predicted they would win 50 plus games uh or something around those uh well i think it was the season after that i think we were both like really high on them and they and that was like when it was so disappointing after after they re-signed all those guys right. after the 48 win season correct the cap spiked rich Cho felt all the pressure to bring the team back you know bring the band back which i don't blame him for but man has it been downhill since then yeah it's been tough with some of those guys actually like marvin williams surprisingly of that group that they re-signed has held up pretty well batum uh, on the other hand has been uh, a, a slight disappointment I, I guess we can say um but i want to just ask you what the feeling is now in charlotte with the loss of, of kemba walker you and i have talked about it for two years before this uh, of hey what are they going to do with them are they really going to pay him maybe they should trade him i came on your pod last winter we talked about it as well they ended up keeping him and then when it comes down to it they offered him less on an annual basis than the celtics did it sounds like about 160 million over five years is, is what the reporting indicates and he is now no longer on the team what is the feeling around that turn of events here uh well i <sighs> I never had a good feeling that the team, Mitch Kupchak, Michael Jordan, were going to handle this thing um, the right way. Um, the comments leading up to free agency suggested that. Um, <laughs> you almost can't believe uh, the quotes that, that Mitch Kup, Kupchak gave you know, a few weeks back about being floored um, by Kimba making All-NBA. I mean, well, that's not true. First of all, it's obviously a yeah, lie. That, I mean, that, it's just, that's it's ridiculous. Just not, yeah, it's well, ridiculous. and they didn't even offer him as much as they could have offered him if he hadn't made All NBA. And that and that's the thing. It's just <laughs> not only is it a poor excuse and a poor lie, but it's not true because it wouldn't have made a difference. I mean, thirty million dollars off of what he could have made at one hundred ninety is still a very very low ball offer. So it wouldn't like just to say, hey, we're we're shocked he didn't make make All NBA, so that justifies our decisions. Like it wouldn't have mattered anyways. You're still gonna low ball him so it's just yeah. the cup check error so far has just been an absolute disaster i mean who would have thought that that was going to be the case either so <laughs> you know they, they've terribly mismanaged this whole situation with, with uh or did mismanage the whole situation with kimba walker and it's really a shame because i do believe kimba that he loved the city of charlotte i mean i know he loves the city of charlotte and i do believe him when he said he wanted to stay and you know, the few diehard fans that there are in this city and around this team, I mean, love that guy. He's one of the most likable players in the NBA. So for, for the, for the franchise to mishandle the situation they, the way they did, it, it's, it, you really can't as a small market team have a worse look than the Hornets have with the Kimball Walker situation. And, and look, there's some young players that we'll talk about during this episode and not all is lost. I mean, there's something to build on, I think here, but it's, it's borderline malpractice how they handle the situation with Walker. And if you knew you were going to offer him that all along, then just trade him at some point in the last two years, trade him. Well, does the fan base, do you, as best you can tell, feel similarly to you? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, you know, there's always the eternal optimist that'll talk themselves into, well, you know, we have a young Terry Rozier and a Dwayne Bacon and Miles Bridges and Devontae Graham, and hey, look, Malik Monk's still got something in the tank to show. You know, there's always those folks. But uh, yeah, I think you would have a really hard time polling the people that really care about Charlotte basketball in the city that aren't um, angry about the way the Kimba situation was, was managed. 
So I'm playing devil's advocate here. To me, uh, and obviously we'll talk about this to your team in a second, but this is kind of the seminal thing that's happened in you. And I've talked about it so much. I think it's interesting now that, uh, to discuss it with what eventually happened. But let's say you throw out it's a sunk cost. Ah, we should have traded him. We blew it. We didn't trade. Should they have offered him enough to get him to stay? Which it sounded like if they would have offered him, you know, the 190 with some of his comments before the free agency period began that he might have taken that. Should they have offered him that contract? Like, like just for the health of the franchise, forget about, you know, the fan loyalty and all that. Mm-hmm. Was that the right offer or should they have offered him enough to get him to stay? Or is it a better move to just move on and rebuild? And, and see, that's where, and I'm glad you like bring that part of this up. That's where I'm like, I, I really don't mind the actual, like in a vacuum, the decision not to offer him even the 190 and just say, hey, we're moving on. That's fine. I actually think for Kimball Walker, uh, an undersized guard, you know, uh, approaching his, you know, his 30s, like you got to figure the decline is coming here sooner than later. Like, I'm good with that decision in a vacuum, but everything that came before that decision is the problem, right? Like, if you knew, if you pretty much knew that you were never going to offer him anywhere close to anything he would accept, then what is your real excuse for not trading him? Not getting something in the cupboard, in the war chest to move forward with because they didn't. I mean, that's that's the bigger part to me. I don't mind the decision to not offer him wh- what he was going to take. That's fine. I, I almost might have done the same thing, but I wouldn't have just let him stay on the roster because uh, because we're, we were hosting the All-Star game. You know, I, the All-Star game was coming irregardless of whether Kimba Walker was wearing a Hornets jersey or not. And and you were going to make the city and the team and the NBA was going to make an equal amount of revenue from that weekend, whether or not Kimball Walker was here. So that is, that's just a BS excuse. Um, so I, yeah, you know, I'm glad, you know, yeah. I, I posited this uh, at one point and we don't need to get into the political discussion, but just that the all-star game being moved back two years because of the political situation that perhaps that is the reason why they ended up not trading him earlier than they did. I mean, that would be just hilarious if that's what it ended up being. <sighs> yeah. I mean, who knows at this point, if that is the case, then <laughs> certainly a ridiculous um, situation to be in and a decision to make. And and if that were the case on top of signing all these awful contracts, you know, the, the year that the year after the summer, after the team won 48 games and the, and the legendary cap spike came into the NBA and the Hornets felt pressure. And I almost don't blame them for that. I don't blame Rich Cho for really bringing yeah. a lot of that team yeah. back. I mean, just I don't the, either. Yeah. Yeah. I, I thought they actually got like, I mean, considering what the other offers that were out there for Batum, I thought they actually like got a decent bargain on him compared to like what some other teams were going to pay him but uh obviously it didn't work out that way um well so i and i guess yeah i mean part of why you want to trade him too is like hey if you think well we're gonna have to give this guy a bad contract to get him to stay then you've trade him before you have to give him that bad contract the only reason i think that i might have said hey we should pay this guy the five for 190 is well maybe you could have gotten some trade value for him after that you know like same yeah. way as the clippers did with blake griffin trade him while he's still valuable before he uh, you know really gets onto the back end of that contract but you know that that doesn't make you look too great from a pr standpoint either um so yeah i mean i I think i'm probably more in agreement with you that just letting him go and starting the rebuild and you know you also consider that you're going to win some games again with with him where they really need to just get more talent on this roster but it's just 
it's such a bummer because it's like they kept him to not make the playoffs the last two years and you know does it really matter that they had him these last two years and didn't make the playoffs and that they won 37 games a year or whatever instead of instead of 26 and now you've extended the rebuild out another two years from where they could have got it started earlier you know maybe try to move him to cleveland in that 2018 trade deadline you know it sounded like they they had a deal on the table there uh if they'd wanted to move him so Exactly. Yeah. I mean, exactly right. But, but it, at this point, it's very clear that that isn't and never has been, you know, again, uh, reloading the war chest. That is not the focus of this franchise it, it, with in its current form as Michael Jordan as the owner. It is he is he is driven from a revenue standpoint. He chased the playoff two years in a row, just as you said, you know, with Kimball Walker on the team when he knew he could have traded him for something. And look, th- this piggybacks on or this preludes really what came this summer where Jordan brought in two minority owner uh minority owners hedge funds guys from from new york city i mean that's pretty i think it's pretty obvious that's a cash infusion to a small market team yeah. that that really needs it because michael jordan has a big name but he would be in the the bottom echelon of uh of cash rich owners in this league yeah i mean it definitely seems like he's living hand to mouth uh, with this franchise and now they have had some higher payrolls among teams that weren't making the playoffs recently where they've been pretty close to the tax and not making the playoffs which you know that's basically a as big of a recipe as you can have for losing money it, without going into the tax but yeah i mean so do you get the impression that having a little bit more financial backing will help the franchise in the long term uh, yeah i certainly hope it does uh you know they're, they're citing things like you know technology they really want to start investing in that and you know analytics to to help the the basketball operations piece move forward i mean it's it, it certainly needed um i don't know how it could hurt right because this franchise is not not cash strapped and neither is this the owner and now with a with a young group um you know you press reset from the financial perspective and hopefully from the roster building perspective too but that remains to be seen all right well let's talk now uh, about this team and i think where we can start obviously they don't have kemba walker anymore but somewhat similar cast of characters though i think the loss of jeremy lamb is also a very underrated loss uh, for their offense but how did these guys look without walker on the floor last year that seems to me like a reasonable starting point to try to project uh, what they're going to look like this year yeah, you know, it wasn't it wasn't as bad in terms of point differential when Kemba sat last year. It was five point four, you know, plus five point four when Kemba was on the floor versus off. Um, but the season before that, and then sixteen seventeen, I mean, it was double digits both years. So it almost cut in half, which is a little bit interesting. Um, you know, when Tony Parker was healthy at the beginning of the season, he helped. I think more than a lot of people thought he would. Excuse me, thought he would with this lineup. So with the second unit, so that helped. But you know, I mean, it's it, it, been the story of the. The Hornets really since their 48 win season. I mean, when Kemba sets for a, a period of time or when he misses time, you know, this team struggles. So uh, it, it got less uh, severe last season, but it was still pretty drastic. Yeah, negative 5.4 net rating with Walker off the floor. And the number that I really seize on 102.9 offensive rating, which is kind of worst in the league sort of levels there, which, you know, if you look at just line up this team's talent on paper, that's that's kind of what it looks like to me at this point here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, look, Kemba, 33.3 usage rate. I mean, nobody else on the team even sniffed that. You know, Parker was in the you know, 22, 23% range. Jeremy Lamb was a little south of that. And then Malik Monk, who almost played actually 
kind of under the radar, almost played 1,200 minutes last season, uh, was, I believe, third on the team in usage. So it was it was all Kimba offensively. And that was when there was talk about the Hornets nationally last season, it was obviously like, look at this roster behind Kimba Walker. There is nothing to show for. And so... It, look, offensively, it was it was very very dry outside of what Jeremy Lamb could could pitch in you know night to night outside of Kimball. So the big new addition, Terry Rozier, three year, fifty eight million dollar contract acquired in a sign and trade for Walker. They really didn't have the flexibility other than the full mid level exception to go out and get another starting level of point guard. They probably would have had to get into the Derby for you know a Tyus Jones or a Dalon Wright or a Thomas Sadoransky at a little bit lower of a level and perhaps that maybe if they'd been willing to go four years at the full mid-level and offered a starting role they could have gotten one of those guys in theory although with those guys being restricted free agents and Rozier's cap hold being given up by the Celtics you, they knew they could get Rozier and you know those guys would have been question marks later on that you know those teams could have matched and then they would have really been out in the cold so you know Rozier that's more than I would have, would have liked to pay for him uh, but how do you think he fits in now as the Walker replacement? Well, I, I'm I'm kind of taking the wait and see approach. I mean, look, the advanced yeah. analytics don't they don't smile down on Terry Rozier. Um, you know, he had he had the the spot in the playoffs a few seasons ago when the Celtics really should have made the finals. Um, and outside of that, I mean, he's he's been I think it's fair to say a pretty inefficient player throughout his uh, his young career. But I, I, look, I'm taking the wait and see approach. He started 14 games last year. Um, he, he averaged 13 points, about 43 percent from the field, 40 and a half behind, from behind the. He's a really good rebounder as a guard, which is one of the things I like about him. Um, you know, he I wouldn't say he's a great distributor, uh, can really set the table for an offense, but he's not awful in that regard either. I mean, 5.2 assists when he started, and he doesn't turn the ball over very much, which I like about Rozier. He's 25 years old. I, I understand all of the negatives with Terry Rozier, and yes, his contract is very, very steep. The Hornets had their, you know, they had their backs against the wall. It was either Rozier or nothing. Or, like you said, you know, dip into the restricted free agent pool, which was always going to be a little risky for this team in their cap situation. So, look, in a vacuum, I think it's fine. I don't really think Rozier, from a cap perspective, is going to hurt this team's ability to trade off expiring contracts, take on longer money, acquire assets, you know, sign free agents on the fringes in the next three seasons. The number's big, but like, in my opinion, Nate, I just, it's not, the Hornets are going to have so much cap space in the next three summers. He, his number really doesn't, it doesn't handcuff their ability to to make moves in that way if that makes sense and i think that's the part that it's people just look at the salary and they look at the number and they're like wow this is so stupid it's not smart but it's not really going to handicap this this cap sheet moving forward yeah next year looking like they'll have about 25 million with uh Batum probably opting in to his uh to his 27 million and then the year after that uh 87 million most likely and that'll be a year where you know i don't project these guys to necessarily be good but you would think they could take on some bad salary a lot of teams can be trying to move stuff around the free agent class for this summer summer of 2020 among point guards that's looking pretty rough you've got wait for my sheet to load here mike conley maybe if he opts out and then cal lowry fred van vliet tj augustin and then some you know goran dragic jeff t i mean those none of those guys really me with the exception of van vliet are young players that you might want to build around that could realistically come to charlotte so i mean if you want to say hey terry rozier is the best point guard who's going to be available either this summer or next summer and we got plenty of room anyway we're not a cap space destination i do understand that to some degree you kind of think all right well who are they competing against to get him 
you know, maybe that would be Phoenix. The problem with Rozier for me is not even that, you know, he's been inefficient a lot. It's that I think most of his value comes from, all right, he can be a decent shooter and defender. I think those are his two best skills. And he fits much better next to, say, you know, in Phoenix, a guy like Devin Booker, right, where they've got the main creator and Rozier can play off of him and be the secondary guy. Here in Charlotte, I fear he may be miscast as the number one guy. And and I think that's totally fair. And that's certainly the biggest unknown, you know, with his situation in Charlotte. I mean, this roster offensively is is void of, of other guys that can create offense. I mean, look, like Dwayne Bacon might be one of the few guys is my if you can hear ringing in the background it's my dog running up here we're going to take your take your collar <laughs> off real quick bud um, that's right you know. no we couldn't we couldn't hear it it was it was fine now people okay. lo- love this behind the scenes stuff yeah it's uh it's J- jade hoy style yeah <laughs> so uh so what was my train of thought so Dwayne bacon probably the one youngster that's going to get real minutes you know on this team that can create his own shot you know we'll see with miles bridges um malik monk has not shown that ability he's more than happy to take a lot of shots but has not shown the ability <laughs> to create efficient offense so like you look at Rozier and you're like man this guy's gonna have to do a lot for this offense but and that's probably going to end up being uh a, a negative you know in a vacuum but i again he started 30 games in his career he's 25 years old i'm willing to see an 82 game sample size before i completely give up on the idea of terry Rozier as a starting point guard yeah and i'm not i'm not saying that he is not you know kind of a lower end starting point guard and overall the point guard market was quite inflated and you know he's got some more upside than maybe someone like ricky rubio signed for pretty similar money in phoenix and you know rubio really wouldn't have made sense for this group rosier again is young enough to potentially grow with this next generation of hornets players um Let's talk about PJ Washington. Mm-hmm. Maybe the the guy that I know the least about uh, of first rounders at this point because he did not play much in summer league. I watched him some at the lower levels. Uh, didn't get a chance to do a scouting report on him before the draft. Uh, but what is the the expectations for him this year? You think? And just talk talk a little bit about his game for our listeners who may not be as familiar. Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, PJ was he was a guy who really flourished into an opportunity at Kentucky the season before last um, and then came into last season you know with Kentucky as is really the anchor in in the middle for them um he barely shot the three ball at all uh the year before last and last season took a, a nearly 83s i'm thinking i should have wrote that down but i but i didn't um yeah and, he shot like over 40% right at but yeah, it was relatively it, low volume but it correct was, yeah. from 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 different parts of the floor as well you know so so that's a big sign so he fits what Brego wants to do offensively i think which is play a little smaller spread the floor play quickly defensively he's i think he's going to end up being pretty versatile i'm hoping he can get to the point where he can guard three positions you know three four and five and you know of course that's assuming the other team is also playing a smaller lineup but i think he's versatile on that end of the floor um he's not the smoothest athlete in the world a little bit stiff in the hips but i do believe that he's you know he's going to get more flexible he's going to get stronger he's going to become an nba athlete you know and uh so i think he fits what the hornets want to become they want to switch on defense they want to play smaller as much as possible and they want to they really want to play five out you know offensively so I like the pick I think he's a pretty safe pick I think he's a guy that is likely a you know a 10-year player in the NBA um he reminds me a little bit Nate of like a Patrick Patterson and and excuse the the easy comparison because I know they're both Kentucky guys but I I think that before Patterson really fell off a cliff 
he was a very useful player in this league, obviously, and and I that's who Washington reminds me of. He's a little bit more athletic than Patterson, though. So, um, you know, I think he's going to serve a role for the Hornets, and I think he's going to get playing time right away this season. Yeah, I think the he's got that kind of, Patrick Patterson, the Morris twins, like that kind of body type. The hope being that maybe he can get to be as good defensively as Marcus Morris. Uh, has been, uh, you know, I don't really see him as like a defensive playmaker that much. Feel free to correct me if you disagree uh, on any of these. And so, yeah, I think the shooting is kind of the swing skill there. He's a power forward. If it, I mean, earlier in his career, he looked like kind of more of a groundbound power center mm-hmm. type, you know, back when he was at the, the high school level playing for Team USA. Uh, but, you know, it seems like he's tried to move beyond that, but, you know, he's still got that kind of frame of more of a traditional power forward. The reason that I didn't really care for the pick, I mean, I'm not, I, I haven't seen enough of him to say, all right, he's either going to succeed or not succeed. I just felt like they needed to go with a higher upside pick at, at that point, given just the overall lack of high-end talent on the roster and maybe they felt like they did that with monk and it didn't work out uh but it seemed like for a team that just desperately needs some kind of an upside with this group you know i don't think that pj necessarily provides that do you see it that way as well or do you you disagree there were there were higher upside guys on the board probably the only guy my memory serves me correctly that i would have taken above pj would have been brandon clark you know i think that he has now offensively as, as challenged as they come if he's not dunking or right at the rim but wow, what what a huge defensive upside that guy you know has. Nobody's Draymond Green, but I, I'll tell you, I haven't seen a guy closer to that coming out of college in Brandon Clark in a while. So that's maybe the one guy I would have taken over Washington. But look, all in all, I think it's a good pick. I think it's a safe pick. I think that, and I said this kind of leading up to the draft scouting PJ. I think there are some ball skills there um, to unlock, and I I think that. I think what I'm trying to say is there's some there's a wing skill set offensively that I think can be unlocked um, with PJ Washington. So we'll wait and see, but I do think you're going to see him put the ball on the floor in the future. Uh, I think you're going to see him involved in pick and roll situations. I, I just there's something there. There's there's more upside there than I think people are seeing. But the only guy I would have taken above him, I think, was Brandon Clark. Yeah, and Clark is interesting. I mean, he he's really athletic, but he's also 23, so it's tough to say that he has like a huge upside necessarily mm-hmm. either. I mean, and you know, of those guys that went below him, Nikhil Alexander Walker had a, an awesome summer league, but you know, frankly, I don't think people were talking about him as being the type of creator that he showed in summer league either. I think he was kind of viewed as another safe choice. Siku Dumboya is someone I might have looked at, or, or Romeo Langford, although Langford didn't incredibly impress me in Indiana either, but he's you know maybe got more creation upside. So mm-hmm. you know, we'll see. I mean. It's not like there are some unbelievable choices, at least at that time. Correct. That were yeah. that were below him. Well, and the other thing with yeah. Washington, just to watch, is you know he he battled a foot issue at the end of last season with Kentucky that kept him out of a few games in the, in the NCAA tournament, and the Hornets were very careful with that leading up to training camp throughout the summer. You know he didn't play in summer league, so you weren't able to see him out there. So let's see, you know how he is if he's ready for preseason. They've been very quiet on that front. Um, they've suggested that he's he's participating in practice at, at full strength, and he said he's ready to go, but. It, it's one of those like we're not quite sure what the foot injury was and that those always make me nervous with with big guys so that's something to watch with him how would you rate the prospects on this team now uh 
going forward i mean if, if you're going to put these guys in order of just who you're most excited about uh, you think will contribute the most to this hornets franchise over you know the next seven years or whatever you want to say how would you rank the guys uh, on the roster I mean, you can throw out some candidates here between bridges washington Dwayne bacon monk rosier guess willie hernan gomez you could you could put in there i don't know about Devonte grant so we, maybe we don't need to get down that low but sure. if you're going to say maybe the top four guys put them in order for uh, as prospects what would you go for uh all right so here's what I, who i would have on the radar um miles bridges number one um I think probably Dwayne Bacon, number two. I don't feel great about that one, but he, he was just so good after the All-Star break last year that he's got a lot of people excited here in Charlotte. Um, I think that the third's hard. I mean, I guess it has to be Malik Monk, but that almost just feels like a default yeah. pick. Well, I, so would you not include Rozier in that analysis? Or you, oh, okay. Are you actually yeah, yeah. Sorry. putting him below? Yeah. Um, uh, I, well, I was putting him out just because of his age but okay let's pretend yeah, like yeah, i guess he's a little older but we'll, we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll use rosier in that i would go i would go miles bridges um terry rosier Dwayne bacon malik monk pj washington and then i would watch Devonte graham um he didn't shoot the ball well last year but i really like him as a player like i think that he could be a monte morris for the Hornets kind of guy if he could learn to shoot the basketball, which he did at Kansas. So, yeah. And I know he's a little older, but I I, I would not be surprised to t- see him take a big step this season. But that's how I'd rank the, the prospect. Yeah, Graham – I he's one of those guys when you watch him he looks pretty good but then you look down it's like oh wait a minute hold on a second this guy uh true shooting is uh 46 percent last year right, so you right, know right. but but yeah I mean I I agree he looks like it. I mean he's just got to make the three ball go down uh, but I think he plays hard I think he has a decent idea how to run the team so you put Miles Bridges first there why is that what what is the feeling on him heading into this season well, you know, I put him there. He, he's just such a jackknife talent, right? Like he can do a lot of different things on the floor. Um, you know, he's he's gifted with athleticism that so few guys and even the NBA have. Um, you know, obviously he's got to find a jump shot that is reliable. But last season, was it lost hope by any stretch of the imagination in his rookie year? You know, he shot 39%, you know, from the corners. Um, he's an underrated passer. Uh, when he gets to the rim, though, it, it, I mean, it's it's devastating for the defense. I mean, that guy drew, drew so many and one uh, fouls around the rim last year. There's no center that can do anything with him coming downhill. O- almost no center. I mean, maybe Joel Embiid, but outside of that, I mean, really, Miles is one of the, he's the class A of, of athletes in the NBA. So, but for him, it's can he develop a dribble? You know, a, a third, a fourth, a fifth dribble. Because at some point, you know, he can't just be a good cutter, you know, and that's how he's getting to the rim and or, or a good offensive rebounder, and that's how he's getting his chances there. At some point, he's got to get himself there. And so that is the next step for him. Um, will he make it? Am I optimistic about that? I would say it's 50-50 that he really seriously develops that skill in the NBA. Um, and the other thing Miles has to do is he's got to learn to chop his feet more defensively, keep the ball in front. Yes, he can block shots. Yes, he can come from the weak side and make a difference. But, man, does that guy have a hard time guarding one-on-one and sliding his feet and keeping the ball in front. So, But he's got all the tools, right? Like all the physical tools are there. And if he does reach his potential, I mean, he's got all-star talent. I don't think there's any question about that. Yeah, I mean, the 71 dunks last year uh, is a, a pretty impressive number. The three-point shooting was yeah, about where you would have expected, maybe, you know, 30, 33%. I didn't, it didn't look like he was like a lost cause from a shooting standpoint. I think he can get up to being an average guy there. Um, 
you know, that is a little disturbing what you say about his defense because I think that's, you know, with his physical tools, you would hope that he could really be close to an elite defensive player and a de- defensive player with his strength across multiple positions. And if he can't stay in front of his man, you know, hopefully he doesn't have like Torian Prince disease where he like looks like a really good defender, but like can't actually stop anybody. So that's that's a, a little disturbing to, to hear you say that. I can't say that I was that locked in on his one-on-one defense last do, year. So. Do you mean Michael K. Gilchrist disease? Is that what you mean? That sounds like what you just described. <laughs> that's what man, that's his situation is so weird. I mean, it sounds like they're just like not even going to play him based on his comments at, at media it's, day. It's yeah, I don't know what's going on there. I mean, he kind of had to opt into the 13 million, right? But uh, probably yeah. a wise move, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but yeah, that's uh, it's going to be an interesting case, yeah. And I, I mean, that was another one of the where just you know, 13 million for him seemed like it actually was a totally reasonable extension and. Uh, you know, just since fifteen sixteen, he had those shoulder injuries. He just, to me, has not really been the same player. And the game also seems to have just kind of passed him by as far as being a perimeter guy who just can't really shoot it much. So, I mean, I think uh, but, if you went yeah. back just real quickly and looked at the Kimba extension and the MKG extension, kind of like you know separately when they happened, I would have personally felt belt felt better with the MKG extension than the Kimba extension when it happened. And that's how crazy this league can be. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, because you remember back in the day, they couldn't defend except when he was on the floor. He really like made a huge difference statistically uh, to their defense. And I don't know whether that was just a fluke or, I mean, he's only, this is his age 26 season. I mean, he was one of the youngest one and done guys that ever got drafted. And it's like he's washed up at this point. It's pretty wild. It's pretty wild how the, the career has gone for MKG. But And I want to bring him up later, though, so we'll save some. Okay, so sounds good. Um, Dwayne Bacon, you mentioned that he played well after the All-Star break. Probably another player that a lot of listeners aren't particularly familiar with. Uh, you know, 57% true shooting last year is not bad. My impression of him is that he to the was pretty reliant on making a lot of mid-range jumpers although he can create those shots uh is that an outdated impression at this point or is it just that he's really good at making those well he he is he is pretty good at making those he's certainly good at getting to his spots i mean he's just got natural strength you know he's got a wide frame uh for a wing you know that's not any bigger than six six probably on a good day um, but yeah, you know, and by the way, I'll t- I guess it's not the mid range jumper because he shot 26% yeah. <laughs> from 16 feet to the three point line. Which, now, as I look at it, which surprised when I looked at that earlier, Nate, I like, I saw it earlier today. I was like, that can't be right. Cause I feel like I, I just, in my sleep, I can like, you know, I can see that guy, you know, bowling a defender off of him, creating a little space and lifting up for that little short mid range jumper and nailing it. But the stats don't back it up. Um, you know, He's he needs to improve his shot profile. There's no question about it. I have that in my notes. You know he he's pretty good at getting to the rim and he's really good at finishing from there. Um, and he was a really good three point shooter last year. I mean there really was no there was no spot of power outage from the corners or above the break for Dwayne. So if that continues and he you know and he continues to kind of develop off the dribble, now you have an NBA player, an NBA wing. You know a guy can get to the rim, get to the foul line, finish at the rim, and also shoot fairly efficiently from all. Uh, parts of the court from behind the arc so you know I was really bullish on bacon last year and then and I and I know I shouldn't put this much stock into this stuff but I can't get over it summer league god I felt like that guy loafed around the court and his decision making on offense was poor and defensively was just putrid which which I was really surprised by uh and and I think the the bigger point there is just Kim is gone here's a team that's in need of a leader um and hopefully that guy could be Rozier to really 
really make an impression on a guy like Bacon. But Bacon's got potential, but mentally sometimes I'm not I'm not sure where he is. And so that's really got to improve. Yeah, and I mean, he's really, if you look at this roster, if you need someone to create an, an ISO, and he's just about your only hope at this point. So I mean, literally, yeah, on the yeah. roster, he's about it. Him and Rozier, that's it. Yeah. And he did shoot the 44% from three last year, but only around 80 attempts. And that's the biggest thing. He's just has got to find a way to take more of those. I mean, he's kind of seems more comfortable shooting off the dribble. He's got to find a way to be a higher volume guy from out there, I think. So what do you think the rotation is going to look like? Who's starting for these guys? If I had to guess right now, and Borrego made mention the other day when asked this question, he was like, I have no idea. Now, I don't believe that, but I do think there are spots up for grabs. I would guess Rozier, Bacon, Miles Bridges, um, Marvin Williams, and Cody Zeller would be my guess today. So no Batum in the starting lineup. Then. I don't th- I don't think so. Um you know, he's just been so, so bad the past two years. It's hard to imagine. And with this young group that you want to give all these minutes to, it's hard to imagine inserting him into the starting lineup. But, you know, you look at that cap number and you're like, but you still have to, you still have to use him in a serious way, right? I, I don't know. I've made this point on, on Buzzbeat, our Hornets podcast that you guys can check out whenever you want. Shameless plug there. Um, that I think the World Cup maybe helped Batum this summer. He, he seemed like a, he didn't play that great over there. He played really good in the third place game, especially defensively, surprisingly enough, uh, in their comeback against Australia. Maybe that helps him and gives him a little extra spark to, to start the season. But like, I think the point here is Nate, he's going to have to earn a starting spot in training camp. I don't yeah. think that this is a guy walking into training camp given the starting shooting guard spot. Yeah. And I think Borrego and he maybe haven't seen eye to eye. There's times late last season where he was barely playing at all. Uh, my recollection so and i mean the usage just the fact that 13 percent usage for him i mean that's just it's wild he's never been like that high but it's just insane it wasn't like totally inefficient but tops uh, top five it, in the league i think last year and guys uh that drop how drastically they dropped in usage from 17 yeah. 18 to last season top five in the league it's, it was crazy yeah, I mean, and the whole idea of him was he's supposed to be a, a secondary creator. He could shoot, he could defend, he, he, uh, but just uh, hasn't come through there. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, I mean, I mentioned he'll figure off the bench. I, I agree with you. Maybe he starts at the beginning of the year. Marvin Williams, to me, it, it does seem like Marvin is a pretty decent either trade candidate or buyout candidate i think he can still help a team uh we'll see what what kind of shape he comes into this year you know he is getting up there in terms of age now this is age 33 season but may i think he could maybe be a candidate to take on some longer salary some bad salary potentially in exchange for a draft pick and also go to a, a team that could help although you know i don't know that that many people are trying to open up the cupboards for the summer of 2020 given the limited free agent class so there may not be the opportunity to take on bad money the way there has been in the past but we'll see that there are a lot of contracts signed this offseason that might start looking pretty bad that uh teams might be interested to offload i suppose um how do you see the rotation on the wing working then i guess monk will figure in kid giltress i guess we'll assume he's not going to play at all washington probably the backup for then yeah, I would I would assume if he's healthy, he would be the backup four. You know, I think I think one of the more interesting questions in training camp is, you know, Dwayne Bacon start. He ended the season really strongly last year. I, w- I would slot him in again as that starting shooting guard. But Ken Malik Monk, who reportedly I don't know if you've seen this, <laughs> came, yeah, he's uh, up he, to two oh five. Yeah, up to two oh five. So now that him skipping summer league is all justified because he gained twenty pounds. Um, so can he go into training camp and and really compete with Dwayne Bacon for that starting spot? I, 
I think that's one of the bigger storylines in training camp uh, because I think either one of the like I think Monk's fine coming off the bench. I think Bacon's fine coming off the bench. I, I'm, I'm really not sure that from a skill set standpoint it makes a, really a difference. So I think that'll be an interesting battle, uh, you know, in training camp. And then I think you're right. Washington is is the backup four. Um, you know, Willie Hernan Gomez. Let's let's see what he's got left. I mean, technically he's an expiring contract on a ridiculously low what is it 1.6 million dollar salary um you know i like the trade the hornets made when they got him from the knicks for a second but yeah he He seems like another guy who's really like not been in favor with borrego though he is such a bad defender (laughs) i mean in terms of just pick and roll defense there's few i've ever watched that are slow footed and just slow reaction time in general is billy um but you know, offensively, he's skilled. He, he he took more threes last year. Uh, you can throw it down to him on the post, and and he can score in a multitude of ways. And you know, he's he can sometimes kind of sort of make a play out of the short roll. I mean, it's just it's defensively. Can he ever get to the point where it's just not a total landslide when he's in there uh, as the defensive center? Um, who am I leaving yeah, out? Great and, offensive rebounder too. That and I think that yeah. he's going to have a, a lot of potential misses to to clean up this year. <laughs> I think um, that's that's a good point. But. But yeah, I, I think it really is a, a struggle for it. But yeah, he's a quality offensive center to be sure. But then, uh, you know, I mean, Bismack Biombo is he still around? Let's see. I literally yeah. forgot he was on the team until about we were doing uh, about another, a few another weeks ago. Uh, sour sixteen center contract. Hey, there. hey, there's another. I mean, there's another expiring. Uh, it's, it's a big oh, number at oh. the very least. Uh, we've forgotten he actually underwent left knee surgery at the end of last season that's that uh correct what a bummer i, I and that's that's actually the last update that roto world has uh for him so <laughs> so uh i mean but he actually played last year like oh, he had to. was out he was the starting center he had to and you know that's just something i was going to bring out and it remains true this year i mean the center rotation behind cody zeller who by the way has only played 82 combined games in, in the last season it's kind of funny in the last yeah, two the, seasons, the last two seasons yeah. yeah it's kind of funny to look back on the hornets and their trajectory in the last two years and how close they came to the playoffs and i would say both years i would circle one thing is the reason they didn't get there and that's cody zeller's just inability to stay on the floor which is which is crazy Crazy to think because I, w- I wouldn't say the league as a whole thinks he's a super valuable player, but he has been super valuable to this team really since he's been in Charlotte. So, you know, there's another question for you. Can he stay healthy this year? But behind him, once again, the, the Hornets have nothing at center. And that, and I, and I think that's going to lead to them playing a lot of small ball this year. Some PJ Washington at five. I wouldn't rule out because it's hard to find a place for Michael K- Gilchrist in this lineup. Don't rule out him playing some, some center and some small ball lineups. And yeah, look, this like is stuff you, that so Brego will Nets try. Used. Yeah. Same way the Nets used Rondé Hollis-Jefferson last Exa- year. Exactly right. Yeah, and Brego will try this stuff. Um, all right, what do you see uh, as the crunch time lineup for this group? Any differences from, from the starters and like some ways that Borrego might want to mix and match it? Yeah, I, I mean, I, you know, I think you could see some Devontae Graham playing with Terry Rozier, maybe in some crunch time lineups, just the same way that Tony Parker and, and Kimball Walker played together, the same way that, um, let's see, who, Ramon Lynn, Sessions. Lynn and Walker. Yeah, and Lynn and Walker, you know, the, those two guard lineups, those have been a, you know, kind of a crux of, 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 of Hornets crunch time lineups in the last five years. So I wouldn't be surprised to see that. I mean, Devontae outside of, I mean, really, he might be the best creator on this roster. Man, that's scary to say. Um, but he might be. I mean, just the, the, the truest passer yeah. and creator on this entire roster. So that would be the only variation. I mean, Borrego showed last season that he wanted to go small 
in crunch time a lot. Marvin Williams played a lot of five. Um, so I would say Devontae, Rozier, you know, Miles, Bacon, and, you know, Marvin or, you know, pick your, you know, PJ Washington, something like that. I mean, I think there's all kinds of different things, MKG, that the Hornets could do late. So, you know, it's funny because so, so you, you, know, you don't think Zeller would, would be in there? Well, I mean, I mean yes, if, he, if he's healthy, you almost forget about him. But there was, Brago did show a lot of, um, last season, he showed a lot of willingness to go to a small lineup at the end of games and, and, and in an effort to make the other team adjust to what you're doing. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, if Zeller's healthy, I mean, you can't imagine him being out of the game. But th- really the only position I would say in crunch time that would change would be Devontae coming in along with Rozier. What do you think of Borrego quickly here uh, before we get into our predictions? You know, I believe in Brego. I um, I think he brings something that Charlotte basketball hadn't seen in a while. You know, you, you go back to the Dunlap days, and you know, certainly Steve Clifford was a great coach here, but not would not consider either one of those guys, you know, modern day NBA coaches willing to try different things. And I think that James- well, I, I will I will give Dunlap credit. He at least tried like pressing a little bit. I mean, That's I know true. he, I I know that was like a terrible era of then Bobcats basketball. Um, and he, there are probably a lot of things wrong with it, but I, I do think he's one of the few coaches I've ever seen in the eight second rule era try a, a real press that's actually like going to try to prevent the team from getting across half court. And you know that failed. They had terrible personnel, but he at least was willing to try it. I, I'll give him that. I, I, I would like somebody with better personnel to try that someday. Sure. Yeah, and I even think Paul Silas kind of dabbled around in that back in the day too. But you know, I you know Steve Clifford. I think it's well documented. He's he's a conservative coach, but hey, look, it 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 spits out great results, and he was great for Charlotte. But Borrego offers something different. You know, he wants to play quicker. He wants to play some small ball. Um, he wants to switch a lot defensively. So I believe in in how he's building the roster. You know, and I believe in really his philosophies and what works in modern day basketball. But as everyone knows, it's not going to make a difference if you don't have the personnel to win games. So, you know, that that's really the ultimate question for him is how quickly can they get him some serious help you know, on this roster to, to, to get back to the postseason. But I like his philosophy and I think it's, and I think it's good for modern day basketball. And, you know, he obviously comes from a, the Greg Popovich coaching tree, you know, so there's, there's some good pedigree there. Yeah, I th- I've liked his uh, willingness to experiment uh, and go small. I haven't seen much evidence that uh, either in Orlando or the, this first year that he's the type of coach that's going to get a team to punch above its weight defensively, which I think is really the number one thing that you're hoping for from a coach. And, you know, he's kind of Steve Clifford did that for a while and then wasn't able to towards the end and then did it again in Orlando and they wanted to go in a different direction. So I'm not going to say he's bad. I haven't seen anything from him that just like blows me away of like, oh yeah, this guy is just an amazing coach. But you know, I I don't think he like, you know, should like be on the hot seat or anything like that, especially when you consider the talent at his disposal and some of the weaknesses that we've mentioned that he had to paper over last year. Um, All right. This might be a short section. Uh, What do you see as the big strengths for this group? (laughs) Um, I think they will be a good rebounding team. Uh, you know, certainly defensively, they got some good rebounding guards and or, or, or rebounding smaller players, and guys like Miles Bridges and and ter- certainly Terry Rozier is a good rebounding point guard. Um, I think Dwayne Bacon can improve in that area too. You know, on paper, it's a low turnover group. Um, certainly the starters, but. It, when you don't have a lot of offensive creation that yeah. that will probably change um i don't really have anything else <laughs> in terms of strengths yeah um yeah i mean you could look at uh, they've got some pretty athletic players like rosier is pretty athletic 
uh miles bridges is yeah maybe and Punk that might all actually be the only three <laughs> uh, yeah that's, i mean that's so so yeah i mean I, I guess that's that's kind of tough to say kind of tough to say too yeah i mean it's really yeah it's tough to come I, I mean i think they could be i don't know if you'd be a strength i think they could be passable defensively that's that was basically my biggest reason for going over their line of 23 wins yeah uh, was that i think that because i i mean i think offensively it's just going to be a disaster but uh defensively i think they can be okay as long as they keep trying they do have uh, some decent vets here what happens to them you know marvin williams in particular but I, I think they can defend at a passable level with this group. I, I think it, it's so interesting to think about this team defensively. I, I think they're extremely volatile. I mean, I think, like you're saying, they could be passable. Yeah. But I it, think at the same theory, time— In theory, they should be better this year than they were last year. In theory. Defensively. In theory, they should. You're, you're absolutely correct. But, you know, giving guys like Dwayne Bacon and Miles Bridges, you know, 30, 30 minutes a night-ish on the wing and expecting to be better defensively is a, is a loser's proposition, I think. So— I just think they're, you know, and Cody Zeller in the back. I mean, he's been reliable, certainly not a crazy shot blocker, but he's just a solid defensive center. Um, I mean, it makes sense on paper, right? Yeah, and Marvin Williams, I mean, he's known to, to – he'll guard anybody and he'll hold his own, and, God, nobody's going to fight more than that guy. But I don't know, man. Just the youth makes me nervous. I could I could yeah. see this team being 14th, you know, 13th, 14th, 15th in defense. I could also see him being dead last, seriously. I, I think there's that low of a, of a floor for them. And then I agree with you offensively. It's just – you know, I, the one thing though that I think could, could float them offensively is Borrego's willingness to, to go smaller, get a little bit more creation on the floor. And what if Rozier takes a step, right? Offensively, what if Dwayne Bacon takes another step? I mean, there's at least two guys that can create their own shot. What if Malik Monk comes in and easily has his best season in the league and really turns a corner? I actually think that there might be a little higher of a ceiling for this team offensively than there is defensively. I know that sounds crazy, but the more I think about it, the more I believe that. Huh. That's, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know if they have a ceiling defensively, but yeah. And I think Rozier too, it's interesting. You mentioned him trying to improve offensively. And what you'll see a lot of times, like Eric Bledsoe is a good analog for this, right? He was this defensive terror. Everyone loved him with the Clippers. He moves to Phoenix. He gets handed the keys and really his defensive effort when he focused more on running the team. He was in a, a losing situation after that first year. And really his defensive effort fell off significantly. So I think if this, if they play, their best guys and if everyone plays up to their potential and they're still competing despite being well out of it then i think the defense could be okay i do share your concerns that just from a morale standpoint a playing young players a playing out the string standpoint it could really go downhill uh, as well um what, another other, weakness yeah go ahead sorry yeah no the other thing offensively i just want to mention is i i and we'll see if it comes to fruition or not but i do think this team is going to try to play as one of the faster teams in the league and so i think that you know they are athletic they're going to be able to run if they can rebound the ball which i i think they can so i would expect that to just lift that de- offensive ceiling just a little bit higher that offensive floor just a little bit higher is the fact that i do think they're going to play fast yeah maybe uh, and rosier we'll see whether he's that kind of guy I mean, he does get the rebounds and that's usually good to have your point guard rebound and push the ball a big weakness i see on this team is passing as well i mean you kind of hit on it with playmaking but they just i mean who is a good passer on this team and you really i mean i guess batum 
used to be one uh, one day but he's never going to have the ball so for their role and for their position I mean I really don't see anyone who can pass the ball on this team and when you throw in below average just ability to break down your guy one-on-one or in pick and roll and you know I'd say average at best shooting you know that's really it's it's a tough recipe yeah no I agree I mean you know you look at a guy like Nick Batum who like you said in theory should be a good passer but he turns the ball over so much that doesn't doesn't really matter and then Devontae Graham I mean Look, he, he's a natural table setter, you know, and that's really why I like him as a player. We'll see if it, if it pans out in the NBA or not, but as sad as it is, he, he really might be the most natural passer, um, offensive creator on this team. All right. Well, now that we have primed the pump, let's go for predictions for the 2019 20 Charlotte Hornets, uh, predicted overall record for this group. I've got 28 and 54. You know, I think they will surpass, um, what Vegas has them at and which I think you said earlier is 23 or 23 and a half, something like that. Um, you know, I just, I think they're going to get health this year. I think just being a little bit younger will help them there. And, but I, I will say I was looking at the, cause I had to refresh my memory I was kind of looking at some of the worst records in the league from last season earlier. And wow, was shocked that there was five teams in the NBA that won less than 30 games. I don't think I remembered that. So that's usually, that's usually a about average actually the year before that i think was was an outlier in terms of how few uh you know they had you had a lot of teams around like between 27 and 31 or whatever i think danny actually said this on the show the other day that usually the five worst teams in the league are below 27 interesting yeah i don't know why i just didn't really remember that but i do think the hornets um they get past their their over under here so i'm going with 28 I'm going to go with 24 and I, I, that's because I have them ranked as the worst offense in the league. And so that's, a, that's just a tough, tough place to start from. I did, I did go with the over for, on 23. Uh, and then, you know, I think I have them kind of not among the worst tier of defenses in the league, but it, I think, you know, maybe around the low twenties in defense. So, uh, yeah, I think they'll, they may be the worst team in the league. I, I'd put them up there with Cleveland probably. Um, as far as that right around that 24 win type of range uh what about best case scenario for these guys best case i've got 35 and 47 that probably sounds crazy i you know i think that if rosier buds is the centerpiece you know of a roster and can run an offense and averages you know seven seven and a half assists a game you know on tops almost 20 points you know really really breaks out nobody expecting it you know and then that's considering that miles bridges malik monk twain bacon all take huge steps in the right direction and lastly cody's got to stay healthy you know if cody zeller plays 75 plus games which is highly unlikely but if that were the case and all those other things happen, I think this team can can sniff mid-30s. Yeah, I wouldn't go quite that high. I, ha- I think I would have them uh, around 30 uh, because it's just uh, – and that would be like – I just see such a, a low uh, ceiling on their offense and it, especially with the passing. I just uh, – these are not that great of parts. And I also think because there's not that much passing, they might be a little bit less than the sum of those parts. You could have young guys trying to establish themselves in the league and you know maybe it's, the shot selection won't be amazing, especially if they're playing fast. So I do think there's a, a ceiling on that. But, you know, defensively, it wouldn't be shocking to me if they were like league average defensively. So maybe like the 25th offense and the 15th best defense gets you up to around 30 wins, maybe 31. I'll, I'll, I'll make it 31. 
You convinced me. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's t- totally fair. Totally fair. Not that much different. Worst case scenario. Um, you know, I think it could it could be fifteen, sixteen, seventeen wins. You know, I mean, I think it could it could dip very, very low. Um, this fan base is not too far removed from remembering the uh, the infamous seven win season uh, for the Bobcats before yeah. the Kimball Walker era. So, you know, I think it could, it could get low. How does it happen? I mean, I think that you know, Rozier get hurt, gets hurt. You know, Miles Bridges or Dwayne Bacon, you you you, you get an injury. At one of those um, uh, positions, Cody Zeller, he's not able to stay healthy again. You know, Marvin Williams, age thirty-three, finally catches up to him, and he he plays half the games. You know, something like that. that this team could just be just pathetic. Yeah, seventeen wins is about what what I'd have to if, and only just because it's very rare that teams win less uh, than seventeen in this day and age. Uh, it's funny. It seems like now there's more downside in the league than upside. Where, be, especially because the good teams are resting a little bit more, right? It seems you're much more likely to see a 17 and 65 team than a 65 and 17 team at this point in time. Now, maybe that's just because the star players have distributed a little bit more. Uh, but you know, even with those great Warriors teams the last two years, they didn't win 65 games. We only had one team over 65, 65 or over in the last two years was a Houston two years ago. So that's uh, it, it would take a lot to get to 17 wins i think they'll be better than that but sure it's uh i mean they weren't there are like real players on this roster it's just a question of you know are those guys still going to be playing are they still going to be around that's where you know they could look like the knicks at the end of last year where you're just playing tons of young guys and a lot of you know two-way guys and guys that just got signed out of the g league by the end just because they've totally torn it down sure i have a question um for you before we go actually real quick oh yeah um all right so you mentioned marvin williams and i think you know hornets fans are interested in this question because of the rebuild that's obviously here um you talked about him earlier as an expiring a guy could help another team maybe the Hornets can take a more salary later get some assets that way so what do you think about assuming they can get a role for mkg and show showcase him a little bit as expiring at 13 and then also i'm gonna throw this idea at you what about cody zeller if he can stay healthy be a contributor i know he's got two years left at 14 this year 15 next year what do you think about those two guys is maybe we could shop them for something i would be surprised especially mkg number one it sounds like he's not gonna play that much so so that would be an issue uh, number two it just he's so out of favor that it, it doesn't seem like i mean, maybe if you're willing to just take back bad salary and bad salary that's not even next year but maybe that goes on two years and they could be the vehicle for that but i really it would strike me as very unlikely that a team would actually want mkg services because he's just so limited i mean i think maybe if he could get back to the player he was three four years ago he could have a role for a team you know around the level of the hornets where the Hornets in the last few years where he's like you know helping to push your defense up a little bit he can give you some rotation minutes but for a team that's really trying to compete in the playoffs he's just so limited that it's hard to play him uh in a playoff setting so I don't know about him Zeller I don't think a team would want to start him and there's also it's just you think about like yeah he's a solid starting center right like he should someone should be interested in him he's not paid that much but there just aren't teams that really have a need at center you know that that's kind of what what it comes out it's not that he's not a good player and this is why centers don't get paid anymore it's just you can find someone like that you know and maybe there's a team and he I don't think he's going to be a buyout candidate with two years left on his deal you know I think he could really help like a Boston, for example, like they they have a little bit of a hole there. I've, I've thought about um, gold, yeah. like Golden State. Like, what if Kevon Looney went down? He's obviously got a history yeah. of injuries. Golden now. State just has no flexibility though. They they got That's the hard true, cap. Yeah. They can't do anything. No, they would. I mean, Steve Kerr. He he said uh, today. Apparently, 
uh, it'll be, uh, or no, it was, I assume that Amari Spellman is going to start for us in the first preseason game. So, <laughs> no, they would, I mean, uh, Steve Kerr would just be ecstatic to have Cody Zeller on the team, but there's no salary that they can match for him. And they also can't go over the hard cap. They have no cash, no second rounders really to. That's true. They have, um, they have no way to make that yeah, happen. No, I mean, it, they would love to have him, but yeah. it's just, they don't have the flexibility. It's uh, it's a problem. Yeah. You know, maybe like a Detroit or something, you know, maybe that, hmm. that could be something where uh, they might have some interest in him, but it just, it seems like who is the $15 million salary that's going back for Zeller and maybe you know we'll see it's probably too early to say because you don't know like what which free agent contracts that were signed are going to look bad but yeah it's right. uh no I, I think Marvin and even Marvin you know maybe second rounder but his he's tough to match salary on too you know part of the reason that this it's so weird now is all these bad contracts basically are expiring right you didn't really have the bad contracts signed as much in 18 and maybe a few more in 17 right but they're all expiring in 16 and so uh, from 16 expiring this year as marvin is and so it's like taking on a guy oh we'll take on a guy for one more year who is it who expires in 2021 that's just like a really bad contract that you're going to trade marvin williams for yeah i mean and, and that's, really get yeah. something worthwhile I, I agree i mean that's really with any of these yeah. three guys i think marvin's the most likely but the, the only vessel to making a trade that makes sense and brings real assets back is taking on more salary down the road because Charlotte has so much freaking cap space after next summer. So, uh, but yeah, I just wanted to bounce that off of you because I think yeah, yeah, I mean, Hornets fans are interested. Know, right. I mean, the history of guys that are kind of that level the last couple of years is they end up getting bought out rather than that they end up getting traded, right? You know, like, like Wes Matthews is a perfect example from last year, right? Even though he's someone who can play some and was in a playoff team's rotation. They weren't, well, you know, teams weren't getting like a second rounder for him. Sure. You know, he ended up getting bought out. Um, so we'll see. I'm, uh, I, I could end up wrong about that. I, I like those guys. I also kind of like some of those guys more than I think the league does. And so that's, a, and, and there's some injury issues there as well. So, um, and, and I'm sure also their agents will be pestering to just get bought out rather than, and Charlotte might even decide, especially given their cash situation. Mm hmm. They might even decide, hey, we'd rather take a $2 million buyout from Mar Marvin Williams than get, you know, the 50th overall draft pick. No question. Yeah. I mean, it is, that's certainly a blow the radar incentive for the team. Yeah. That's a good point. Um, all right. Where can everyone keep up with your stuff here and, uh, probably see me? I'm sure if, assuming I'm invited on at some point during the season for, for your pod. You, you, you certainly will be. Um, yeah. So you can find me on Twitter at QCH Spencer. Uh, and then I used to write, but I don't anymore, but I would still, uh, recommend that you go check out queencityhoops.com. Still support the, the site as much as I can. Noah Purser does a great job with managing that now. And then really my main, uh, you know, Hornets coverage now is, is Buzzbeat podcast. We're, we're a member of the Blue Wire network. So I would go check that out. My two, uh, fantastic, uh, co-hosts, Richie Randall and Brian Geisinger. So we'll have weekly pods coming out about, coming out about about the Hornets this year if uh, hearing about the Hornets every week is your thing I hope it's not but you can find us there for this <laughs> <laughs> yeah well I, I applaud you for retiring from writing and only podcasting I've uh I've done the same so <laughs> it's, it's I, a nice life I, I completely mean, understand yeah. yeah it's uh I mean because I like I like the process of coming to my conclusions and doing the research and I'm just I'm so exacting when I'm start writing it just it takes me forever because I'm just like no this has to sound perfect and I do like a million edits and it's just like oh it just took me five hours to write a thousand words it's like it's just it's not like time efficient for me compared to podcasting correct and
and nobody's well not nobody's reading anymore a lot of people are still reading but everyone is listening to podcasts so it seems like the the thing that that we should probably be doing if we care about this stuff yeah all right well thanks again uh, for coming on and uh looking forward to uh going on your show later this season so till then sounds good thanks nate Thanks again to The Athletic for sponsoring today's program. Theathletic.com slash Capspace will get you 40% off a yearly subscription. That comes out to $2.99 a month when you subscribe at that athletic.com, theathletic.com slash Capspace URL. You can get access to all of Danny LaRue's work, great podcasts uh, as well produced by the awesome Jade Hoy, and support fantastic sports journalism. That's theathletic.com slash catspace. Don't forget that slash catspace URL to let them know that you came from us. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.